Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. It is Tuesday morning, September 13, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Micah Freehold. Good morning, sir. Good to have you back in the fall. Hope everything is good to go. Thank you. I appreciate that. Good deal. Um, how about your Atlanta Braves? Well, this uh, this brief sports report brought to you by Bird of Hopefully a Thousand very Guides. Brief. How about your Atlanta Braves over the yeah. past three days, Rev? Mm. Well, Lose two or three in Seattle, get beat last night against San Francisco. Um, the one thing you can't do when you're in a pennant race is lose three games in a row. Good baseball teams. Let me back up. Really good baseball teams. That's the question here. Is Atlanta a good baseball team? Unquestionably. I think even Freehold will admit, yeah, they're a good baseball team, man. Uh, are they a really good baseball team? Uh, well, we're finding out. And um, they have been the last few months. Well, I mean, they have been the last few months. No question about but it. Right they have now, been. They have been a record-setting Atlanta Braves since June first. Um, they're not playing like. But, it but now. here's the deal, and I try to tell you and the other Braves fans this: if you dig a hole as big as the Braves dug prior to June first, and you expect to play seven twenty baseball, there's a reason 116 games is the all-time best record in Major League Baseball history. Teams just don't win 72% of their baseball games. They just simply do not. And when you get yourself in a 10.5 game deficit, you've got to play 700 baseball to catch up. And then you leave so little margin of error or so little room for error. And the Braves, I mean, you just can't expect to play 720 baseball for from June the 1st to the end of the season. I mean, if the Braves played 720 baseball, if they do play 720 baseball, they're a very good baseball team. An extremely good baseball team. History says they won't. History says they'll have a three-game losing streak somewhere along the way. And um, and I really went back to last week. I, I'd heard a Mets fan, friend of ours, said the Mets had the much easier path, you know, to the finish line. He's exactly right. I mean, the Braves had three against Seattle, lost two of three. That's a good baseball team. Um, three against San Francisco. They lost the first game of that three-game series last night. Um, I think it's impaired if the Braves went tonight and tomorrow. I mean, I don't think you can lose two or three against Seattle and two or three against San Francisco and call yourselves a really good baseball team. You can be a good baseball team, but really good baseball teams in, in the crunches of a pennant chase just don't lose consecutive series to pretty good baseball teams. I mean, the Giants would probably be as good as the Braves, maybe not quite as good. The depth of pitching, I think, is something Freehold has talked a little bit about. And I believe that, but I think the depth of this pitching staff. But uh, you better tighten up. I caught a break at the Cubs beating the Mets yesterday. Um, well, the Mets are a good baseball team. Are they a really good baseball team? I don't think they're as good as the Braves. I mean, I think the Braves, I said yesterday, I think the Braves are a little bit better. I'm talking about a little bit better than the Mets, especially if Scherzer's on the shelf for a period of time. But anyway, we, we shall see. So, mm -hmm. Rev, your Atlanta Braves right. need to get it kicked into high gear. You're right about I want to go real quick to this. Um, every now and then, I take on these real extreme positions. I mean, they're out there. So several years ago, Rev and I are together at a, I think we might have went to a radio uh, function at williams Bryce Stadium, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. You invited me to go to the radio affiliates luncheon that the University of South Carolina puts on every year. Um, we went. I think the baseball coach may have spoken. We thought he could coach then. Um, the football coach spoke. We thought he could coach then. Um, <laughs> I'm, being a bit, I'm being a bit sarcastically <laughs> critical here, critical for a second. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, must champs there. And someone talks about 
the 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 plethora of injuries. They've had a you know a three guys sprained ankles, two knees, um, a lower leg extremity here, a lower leg extremity there. We get to the car to come home. You can tell me if I'm right or wrong here, and I don't mm-hmm. want to be the know-it-all guy. But we're coming home after that luncheon, and I said, Rev, I know what the problem is. Uh, of course you do. I mean, I, when, <laughs> how do I not expect you to know exactly what the problem is? I mean, the coach said he believes that, you know, that there might be some. Here, here, here's the debate. I think you even, if I remember correctly at this luncheon, they do have a Q&A portion where anyone that's there, and this is a group of radio affiliates from across, across the state, uh, can ask a question of, the head coach, mm-hmm. and I believe you actually brought it up. I did to the coach, uh, but I knew Will a little bit. Yeah. I got to know Muschamp a little bit through his arm. Um, yeah, because I, I'll, I'll point this out: when he was answering the other questions from the other people in the audience, you know, he'd answer their question. When he answered your question, he said, "Well, Ken, well, I mean, and, and I know him through, or got to know him through some of the trustees. I mean, that's how I yeah. got to know Muschamp. Don't know Beamer, got to know Muschamp pretty well. I don't ever want to do that again. As a fan, I'd rather not did, know the did coach. It hurt your experience. Well, I mean, it bothers you, man. When you see a guy failing and you know he's failing, and you know eventually he must be fired, but he's kind of a friend of yours. Yeah, I don't want to get – I mean, I I, I just – I didn't like the way close. that felt. Yeah, but that just felt weird to me. Um, so anyway, yeah, I, you know, during the uh, during the luncheon, someone from the media – and I'm not from the media. Someone from the media asked Muschamp about all these injuries. And I think I did ask Will. I said, Will, I, you know, have we researched the equipment? I mean, have we done uh, the, the necessary legwork to find out whether we've got a an equipment deficiency or not? So we get to the car and go home. I think we'll look to be like, well, I don't know. I mean, you know, well, well, here's the deal. Most of those guys talk about strength training, conditioning, soft tissue training, uh, pulled hamstrings, pulled quads. You know, that could be that, – that, a lot of that could be strength conditioning related. Um the, the cycling, Debo Samuel would have been the classic example. They've done a lot of metrics and measures on Debo to find out that after so many repetitions, Debo's soft tissue starts breaking down. You can't ask Debo to take off and go, but so many times in such a period of time. I mean, is it genetic? I don't know. I mean, someone in the training and that field of expertise would know better than I, but they were convinced that their problem was the cycling of conditioning, that they were not giving their uh, their their athletes proper recovery time when it comes to the uh the in other words Debo Samuels on the line of scrimmage or Clemson receivers on the line of scrimmage want to be fair here uh and they take off well I mean when they take off it's a world-class athlete you know what I mean there's a lot of energy exerted when they take off and they had kind of sort of concluded that the training was not allowing the soft tissue training was not or the athletic training was not allowing the soft tissue to heal itself to recover properly and, and they kind of um they actually put these guys on counts. In other words, we're going to run this many wind sprints, do this many squats, do this many leg lifts, and leg all these you know strength and conditioning things they did, and they were convinced they'd found a flaw in the training model, not allowing these kids the soft tissue of the lower extremity to heal. I'm getting in the weeds here, but bear with me for a second. And I told Rev coming home, I said that ain't it. It's them damn shoes. It's them mm-hmm. damn shoes. <laughs> I, I can confirm. I said, it's those Under Armour cleats. Something's inferior. Something's deficient about the design. And I think Rev looked at me like, dude, come on, man. I mean, that, that <laughs> is like, really yeah, I mean, are you, do you know who outshot John F. Kennedy? You know what I mean? I mean, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald took the blame and and, and bore the blunt of the punishment. Um, I, I guess you well, he got killed by, you know, Jack Ruby. But I mean, are, are you going to tell me now that you know the other guy? You know, from the other side of the grassy knoll, um, stop with that nonsense. You heard the guy give an explanation. 
I mean, it's soft tissue training. It's the cycling. They're not allowing their athletes to recover properly. It's them damn shoes, Rev. <laughs> it's those shoes. Well, this weekend, the Gamecocks go to Arkansas, have two lower leg injuries. And and once again, I've you know the same people that I talked to a lot at the university, I said, guys, I'm telling you, they were talking about the chicken curse. You know, to have two linemen or two defensive players tear ACLs in the same game, I think maybe even on the same play. Um, that's the chicken curse. And I sent back a text in the group. I said, no, it's the Under Armour curse. I mean, it, it, there are five schools in America, maybe six. There's either five or six schools in America that have signed uh, deals with Under Armour. Everybody else is Nike. Everybody else is Adidas. So there's kind of um, there's three companies you deal with, Under Armour, Nike, and Adidas. Adidas has extensive experience in building shoes. Nike has extensive experience in building shoes. Guess the one company that doesn't have extensive experience in building shoes? Under Armour. Under Armour became um, noteworthy and relevant with this, this sweat-wicking material. Remember? I mean, that's kind of their claim to fame. They, ma- they made these shirts that wick sweat, and next thing you know, there's shorts and socks and all these other, but they realize there's not a lot of revenue in that. I mean, there's a reason Nike spends their advertising dollars on shoes. Now, Adidas spends their advertising dollars on shoes. That's where the money is. So Under Armour concludes, if we're going to play in the sandbox, we've got to figure out a way to put a shoe on the market that competes with Nike and Adidas. And they signed, I think, Steph Curry was the NBA player that became an Under Armour spokesperson. And he, he kind of said off the record he wasn't real crazy about those shoes, that, that, that there was some problems fundamentally. Now, once again, um, it's a little bit like this. It doesn't matter to Rev and I. Rev drives a car. I drive a truck. I mean, they're, they're street versions. We don't drive 3,500-pound race cars. So it doesn't really matter if Rev's tires have a little more thread or tread than mine, or mine have a little more tread than Rev's. I mean, it matters eventually, but Rev's got another 8,000 miles left in his tires. I've got another 10,000. It doesn't matter, man, because we're stopping at stop signs. I mean, we're running somewhere around the speed limit. So, you know, Rev's tires are a little bit better than mine. Mine are a little bit better than Rev's. No big deal. But eventually, he and I both are going to have to get new tires. He's going to stretch it out as long as he can. I'm stretching it out as long as I can. But if I'm running a a hot lap at Daytona, those tires mean a lot. I'll carry this over. Do you want to go another step? Chase Elliott said after the race in Kansas Saturday, Sunday, he thought he had a fifth-place car. But he finished 11th. He didn't trust the tires. They had multiple blowouts, multiple tire failures. Elliott had crashed at Darlington and couldn't risk crashing in Kansas, or he may not advance to the next round of the playoffs. So he admitted, I kind of took it easy. I didn't trust those tires. I saw Bush have tire failure. I saw the three car have a tire failure. I saw all of these guys that I'm competing with for a championship have a tire failure, and we made a decision. It's just not worth trying to run fourth or fifth when we think we can run 10th or 11th and not risk blowing the tire out. That 3,500-pound car running 180 miles an hour in a corner is a very stressful moment for that tire. That 300-pound lineman in that football cleat trying to dig in the dirt, plant, and go the other way, that is a very stressful moment for that Under Armour cleat. Nike has proved that they can answer the bell. Adidas has proved that they can answer the bell. Under Armour? Eh? 
up until now, I don't think they have. And I believe there, there's a deficiency in those shoes that allow these 300-pound linemen to stop, but their foot and leg continue to move in a certain direction. Now, now I'm not a designer. I'm not an engineer. I don't have any idea. But if I were the director of competition for Gamecock football, I would be meeting with Under Armour yesterday and today, and I would have somebody on my side that understood the engineering, the designing, you know, the the, um, the anatomy of the foot and the leg and all these other sorts of things. But but I'm not saying that today because they had two season-ending knee injuries uh, in Arkansas. It may have been fluky. I mean, the shoe may be have the shoe may be perfect. There may be nothing wrong with this cleat. There's not much history on this cleat, and you're not asking. I mean, when Rev and I drive to work, no big deal. I mean, I'm running 50 in a certain place. I should, probably should be running 40. So what? I mean, that doesn't stress the tire. But but Chase Elliott said, I think I could have run fourth or fifth, but I didn't trust that tire. The football player has no choice. When they sign a contract with a sponsor or an apparel company, I mean, he wears that Under Armour cleat because the Gamecocks get paid. Uh, Clemson gets paid to wear the Nike cleat. And I understand uh, the Gamecock football brand is not as noteworthy as a lot of others, and there was some exclusivity. You know, by being one of the five and six. I think Auburn and the Gamecocks are the only Under Armour brands. Um, I think Maryland is a Big Ten Under Armour. You know why Maryland's a Big Ten Under Armour brand? I mean, the guy that Kevin Plank invented Under Armour, he went to Maryland. I mean, from what, we, from what we understand, the reason Maryland left the ACC is Kevin Plank footed the bill. How much does it cost to leave this conference and go to the Big Ten? And they went to Kevin Plank, and he said, okay, man, we caught lightning in a bottle with this dry fit stuff. We're trying to get the shoe business. I made more money on this nonsense than I ever imagined. What, what does it cost? And then, we, you know, I understand that he helped foot, maybe not the entire bill, but he came up with a lot of the money to get them out of the ACC into the Big Ten. But I'm telling you, trust me on this, that, 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 and I, that, that shoe is not up to standard. It is not up hmm. to standard. And when, when Beamer has his press conference, and they make the announcement that both of these linemen are out for the year because of ACL tears. I, I'm not saying it would have happened in a night or wouldn't have happened in a Nike or an Adidas shoe, but but there's something up with this shoe <laughs> that that is not being evaluated. Red says, "Dude, that's going so far down the road." When, when you're trying to be the, as competitive as you can be, I mean, when you're competing with the Alabamas, the Clemsons, the Georgias, these are the best programs in America. You've got to look for every single advantage that is there. And I think the shoe company and the shoe contract is an inferior. I mean, it, it puts a lot of money in the bank. You know, in the big Under Armour, we must protect this house and all these other good things. I just don't think there's solid enough evidence and a track record like Adidas, like Nike, to show this um, this shoe is up to snuff. So I feel better. I don't feel better that two kids had their season ended. I mean, please understand, Clemson, Carolina, Georgia. I mean, I've never been one to take any joy at all and watching kids with a tiger pole on their helmet or a chicken on their helmet, you know, fall prey to injury and not be able to continue playing football. I mean, I, I ain't up for that. And if you are, that's your problem, not mine. I mean, I've heard fans get kind of under their breath cheer when, when a five-star receiver from Georgia or Clemson or something. I know. I mean, I, I, you know, it's a little bit like Deshaun Watson. I mean, I don't care where he can play college football. I hope the kid can get his life together. I mean, obviously, there's a price to pay for what he's supposedly done. But I hope the guy can get his life back together in a more positive fashion. But but I do. I, I believe this, and I reached out to some of my buddies, you know, in Gamecock orbit, and I said, guys, I'm telling you, it's those damn shoes. We we got to evaluate whether or not these shoes are contributing to the just the unbelievable 
number of lower extremity injuries in comparison to Muschamp even said that day we were there, Rev. He said, you know, on normal year cycles from, from two days through strength training through the season, a team will have six ACLs, five to six. I mean, you're just going to have that. I mean, you're asking a lot out of these big guys. So you're going to have five or six ACL, some total reconstruction, some just kind of tweaking, you know, and they're not season ending. Um, but I think they had 13, 12 or 13 in that year. And that's when I was like, no, I've never trusted that shoe. Something's up. And something's up. You better believe it. <laughs> Freehold's going like, wow, okay. I mean, this dude is obsessed with um, <laughs> He's way in the weeds. No, I actually noticed something online that you're going to like a lot. I'll show you in a minute. Okay, good deal. Um, <laughs> but, 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 hey, using your tire analogy, I have been working on shaving a tenth of a second off my commute to work in the morning. So, you know, tires are a big deal to me. You, you and I are trying to shave a minute or two by making a lot instead of catching the lot. <laughs> right. Chase Elliott and Kevin Lar- or Kevin Harvick and Kyle Larson are trying to shave off, you know, one-tenth of one hundred or something like that to finish, you know, fifth. I just I think that's an interesting analogy. Elliott said, I think I could have run fourth or fifth, but I didn't trust that tire. 843. I know that's a lot to do about nothing, but I wanted to get it off of my chest, so okay. I feel better. You feel better? The, 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 the first 20 minutes of the show has been dedicated to me. The next three hours and 40 minutes will be dedicated to you. Take a break. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Pat in Florence. Good morning, Pat. Hey, good morning. Uh, I was calling with regards to Ken's uh, hypothesis of uh, the ACL tears and shoe wear. I'm actually a sports medicine physician, and there's, there is uh, significant evidence of different uh, shoe wear type of shoe wear can cause ACL tear, especially with uh, artificial turf. You know, one uh, artificial turf has an increased injury rate, and then two, the European literature uh, looked at you know the soccer players and, and determined that there was specific type of shoe wears and design of spikes and more. If you have more spikes towards the outside part of the foot. I remember growing up, we used to have spikes that kind of stuck out sideways, the rubber spikes. Those would cause, uh, you know, an increased uh, traction and uh, and, uh, and increased injury rate on the knee and more ACLs. So I, I'm not familiar with the Under Armour spike, but there could be uh, some meat on that bone. For sure. Pat, Pat, let me ask you a question while I got you on the phone. So you goofed up and called in. Now, <laughs> now you're on the spot here for a second. <laughs> Um, and once again, I don't know if there's a fallacy or deficiency with the shoe or not. I have no idea. I'm, I'm, my mind is complete conjecture and speculation. But, but I, do, I do wonder, and I tried to find an answer on Dr. Google last night. If a 300-pound lineman is an elite physical condition, does that mean his ACL is, is better prepared to absorb whatever load? In other words, when a 300-pound world-class defensive lineman plants his foot and tries to turn, I mean, there's enormous energy exerted there. Is his ACL proportionally stronger than ours is to absorb that unbelievable amount of torque that you nor I would probably generate? Um, yes and no. I think you know conditioning and being in shape helps uh, prevent some of the ACL tears. But whether that is uh, that is ACL necessarily stronger than ours, you know, an ACL tear, eighty percent of them occur without uh, contact. Mm-hmm. It's not like the other guys tackling him or bumping into him. It's a change of direction, non-contact, and it's the amount of energy and torque that's applied over a certain amount of time. You know, if you apply the, you know, the amount of energy slowly over time, the ACL can hold four or five times that amount of injury. But if it's the rapid, you know, boom, 
and that's like, you know, like when you stretch a rubber band, you can pull it slowly and stretch it three feet, but if you yank it, you only get a foot and it snaps. Interesting, um, interesting. That's the same with the, that's the, same with the ACL. Uh, we see uh, a spike in ACL injuries on the first day of practice for football, and I think part of that is uh, kids, are, you know, in the high school area here, kids, you know, come in deconditioned, hadn't been working out this summer, and like, hey, let's go. And they you know, put the helmet on, and let's start to do some conditioning. So we see a spike during that time period. We also see a spike the first day of pads and hitting, and then also the first first real live game week week zero or week one, we'll see a spike of ACLs. And if, then uh, you know, then in the, as the season goes on, it tends to just be you know one here or there, and then um, usually near the end of the season, I think part of it is you know fatigue factor starts fitting in. And then we'll see a, a little spike with ACLs. Last question. I mean, obviously, um, orthopedic surgeons don't build shoes. Um, engineers of footwear don't perform orthopedic surgery. It, could there be a collaboration? In other words, let, let's say I'm barking up the right tree, and there is a, a flaw or deficiency with this Under Armour cleat. Um, an engineer doesn't know the knee. Um, an orthopedic surgeon doesn't know the engineering aspect of a of a cleat or a sneaker or some other sort of athletic shoe, but I mean collectively, could there be a corroborating process, a collaborating process? I'm sorry, a collaborating process that has an orthopedic surgeon and someone who knows how to engineer and design footwear. I mean, am I getting too far out there, or is that some sort of um some sort of um relationship that could be formed to find out whether we have a problem or not? Well, I'm I'm I'm, I'm hundred percent with you. I think that uh, probably, like you know, like I said, I'm, I, I'm not the expert on the shoe design or the shoe wear, but I'm, I'll guarantee you the, uh, you know, the Nikes, Adidas have already done that. Interesting. Um, I, you know, I can't, I, I can't comment again on the Under Armour design. I don't know anything about it and what it is, but, uh, but there is, you know, there is literature that shows that certain types of shoes will increase the risk of ACL. So. Yeah, if I was a, a, a billion-dollar footwear company, I'd make sure I'd have every expert on that panel making sure that we have the best shoe there is. Very well explained. Pat, thank you for your time this morning. Kind of an interesting perspective. All right. Take care now. Thank that, you. That is a very interesting. Now, the first question I ask is, what if someone as smart as that will listen to this nonsense, <laughs> you know, every every single morning? But thank you. I mean, yeah, we, we, we're like the Trump orbit, right? <laughs> you never know who may be in it. I mean, there is no telling who um, listens and contributes. And thank you, Pat, a lot. I think I know who Pat is, but thank you a lot for calling in and uh, and explaining in a much more um, educated and formal way than I ever could. And look, guys, I mean, I'm leveling with you. I mean, I'm speculating. I mean, this is nothing but personal opinion. Um, but it just it's, it's kind of interesting that four or five years ago, Rev and I are coming back from Columbia. And I, I just remember telling Miss Claire, I actually called him yesterday. I said, Rev, you remember that day we drove back from Columbia after that luncheon? Yeah. You're talking about the day you asked Muschamp the question. I said, yeah. I said, Rev, I'm telling you, I'm still concerned about those shoes. Now, it's encouraging that Pat would say when they designed these shoes, I'm sure there's some input from orthopedic surgeons or the orthopedic process. What does this do to the bone or the tissue or the you know ligaments, tendons? I, you know, I, that, That's out of my realm of expertise, obviously. I mean, you know, I have zero understanding of what it takes to tear an ACL or what happens to the, to the, um, you know, to the, to the calf muscle or the quad muscle or the hamstring muscle, but there's got to be some understanding one of other, one of the other, right? I mean, the shoe designer is not a surgeon. The surgeon's not a shoe designer, but at some point in time, 
the shoe designer has to take into consideration everybody that wears this shoe isn't a, uh, a novice jogger. I mean, if we're going to build this shoe for a, a, a you know a Power Five football conference, we got to believe that eventually, you know, this size 14 will be filled by 320 pound more athletic than normal guy that's going to exert more in you know it's the Chase Elliott argument. When Goodyear builds a tire for Rev to put on his car or me to put on my truck, they never imagine we're going to win the return of 186 miles an hour in a 3,500 pound race car. But when they design that tire for NASCAR, they've got to design it with that in mind. And the point I'm trying to make, when you build a shoe, I mean, I understand building for the masses. The masses aren't 300-pound athletic defensive linemen trying to plant their foot in artificial turf and go another direction, but some of their shoes end up there. Are they building all these shoes by the same engineering standard, or is there a... um, closer attention paid when they build these specific shoes and i go back to auburn in south carolina auburn and south carolina are the two under armor schools in the sec if somebody did some some research kind of an analysis has auburn and south carolina experienced more lower extremity injuries than all of the other teams the nike adidas schools that have what 100 year now nah, well nike doesn't like he's probably got a 50 or 60 year record you know in, um, in athletic apparel shoes being the kind of and, and here's the interesting part about under armor to me and once again, I'm going down a, a complete and total spe- road of speculation. Under Armour made its name doing what? The dry fit gear, right? I mean, the, the sweat wicking material. I mean, that's kind of how Under Armour got on the map. I mean, next thing you know, you know, there, there's somebody wearing a shirt and a golf shirt and a, and a pair of khakis, and it's the sweat wicking material. That's always been their forte. Nike is known as what? Shoes. A shoe company. Adidas yeah. is known as what? Shoes. A shoe company. I mean, the shoe was not ancillary to their business model. It was not an add-on to the business model. The the Nike shoe came before the deal with Tiger Woods. The Adidas shoe came before the deal with the World Cup. Under Armour began as a sweat-wick and apparel company who realized to really make money, they need to build and design shoes. How good a shoe does Under Armour build? That's the question I'm posing. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Good morning, Breeze. Kid. How many times have I got to tell you that I, I, I know more than these doctors do? I don't disagree with that. I thought of you when I, um, and I was supposed to call you back and got tied up, but I, I don't disagree I with you. But I, myself, I, by the way, let me I, tell you what the deal is, kid, real quick. Take your foot, put it on, put it on a piece of paper and draw an outline of it. Does, does your shoe look anything like that foot? No. The foot, the, the shoes that are being designed are being designed for a aesthetics to look good not to perform good there is a company out there right now that is that has built a custom shoes for athletes where they basically take a 3d print of your foot and then they build a shoe around your foot if you look at your neck if you look at your um uh, new balance tennis shoe it's got a toe spring in the front which elevates your toes it's got an artificial arch in the middle and then it's got a heel on the back, but then the front of it, it looks like an elf shoe because they got all your toes squished together. If you walk, if you look at people that go barefoot regularly, you'll notice they're able to splay their toes out. In other words, like you can take your hand and open your hand, take your shoe off, take your sock off, and see how many of you guys in the studio can actually move your damn toes, much less spread them apart. Okay, so common sense will tell you that if you use your toe the way God intended it to be, and you can open up your toes 
then you're going to have better traction there. Okay, you're going to have better performance. So you're going to see these shoes are going to look more like the front end of a croc. It's what they call it a wide toe base. You know, and you hear about the minimalist shoes and stuff like that. But if I were daggone Chase Bieber, I'd get me 50, about 50 yards by 50 yards of a plow, and I would plow up a field, and I'd have about a foot and a half of daggone plow dirt, and I'd have those guys running in it to where they seek in and raise their knees up, seek in and raise, get their feet strong, their ankles strong, get their hamstrings strong. But a good street coach is who's supposed to protect you from uh, these ACL tears. And a lot of us on the posterior chain. Kettlebell swings are a great way to protect their ACL. There's other exercises, but most people are you know don't they're weak in the back and they're too, you know they're too weak in the back. Their hamstrings, their glutes, and stuff like that are not. There's a just you know. But anyway, that's another story. But it's the shoes. Now, kid, I'm not gonna tell you. I'm gonna tell Dave. Y'all want to know what Ray Tyner has been telling people about this whole thing with uh with BYU at Dalton Staley. Let's hear it. I don't know. Well, he is saying that he called up. Well, first of all, he's saying there was no contract with with BYU for the for the game, so they didn't have to pay him. They did not have a signed contract. Also, he's saying that uh, the investigation. He called up the. Uh, I guess it's a lady. It's either the president of Duke or the or whatever or the. Uh, it was a lady. I don't know if she's AD or whatever. And, you know, and, and she was saying how she is 100% certain that it happened and blah, blah, blah. And then they said, well, they said, well, so the question was, well, how about all these investigations? Well, it was so subtle that the subterfuge was so great that you couldn't pick it up with modern technology. Supposedly, this person was kind of walking by the court. And here's the kicker. They're also saying that the person that walked by the court and supposedly did something inappropriate or racially is also mentally impaired. So this mentally impaired person that nobody can find and nobody is interviewed, and this is what the president of the college said, and I know it to be fact. You know, and, and here's and the person that told me this wants it to be true. He wants just like Dalton Staley wants it to be true. They want it. They, 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 even if it's not true, they want it to be true that these, these white supremacist MAGA conservatives are screaming racial slurs at poor, at poor college, poor innocent college girls that are trying to play volleyball, but these white supremacist MAGA Trump supporters are screaming racial slurs out. They want that to be true. But yeah, listen to what he's saying is, it's so, it was so subtle, so sophisticated. That you couldn't pick it up with um, all of the investigative tools they have. But my question then was, and I asked him, I said, well, where is this guy? Uh, well, I mean, does he have a cell phone? Can we prove he was there? Does anybody interview him? Y'all say y'all have a guy picked out and everything. And I said, well, where is Brigham Young's history of racism? He goes, well, you know, there sure are a lot of white people over there. And I said, well, I said, if you could go by that standard, then the University of South Carolina's racist. They show our many white people playing sports at, at um, University of South Carolina's basketball or football team. Are they racist? I mean, are we going to hold all these same standards to everyone? Of course, the, the liberal has no response to that. 
I said, they want to say, so where is, that, that's, that's, what, that's the idiocracy of what Tatter is trying to say, that that was just too sophisticated for the investigation to pick up or too subtle or just flat whatever. But does that make any sense at all? And I know this conversation took place. Yeah. Not at all. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. Hmm. Breeze threw a lot at us. Yeah. I'll say this. Some of what Breeze just said, I've heard. I mean, I've heard exactly what he heard, that the um, no contract. the incident was so under the radar that nobody was able to hear it, but there was this mentally impaired person that they'll leave unnamed that said it in a way that cameras couldn't detect it, recording devices couldn't detect it. I mean, there's no visual evidence. There is no audio evidence that it ever happened. But there's this mentally impaired person who was at the game who, in the most subtle way imaginable, was able to, I guess, Rev, under the radar, um, I don't know how you scream racial slurs under the radar. I mean, it's nonsense. I mean, it's absolute total nonsense. And, and it's still an issue because the media, uh, I read an article yesterday in the National Review about CNN. Um, I've actually got it here. We can go through some of what um. The New York Times has done. The Washington Post has done. CNN has done. I mean, I think the the university most damaged and despaired is BYU, without question. I mean, BYU has done an investigation that contradicts everything the media and Don Staley and the University of South Carolina, for that matter. I mean, whether you agree with um the the belief that Breeze just espoused, your university's kind of make banking on that. I mean, the, the women's basketball coach at South Carolina said, despite what the BYU thorough investigation says, I've done my own investigation and I stand my, my decision. I mean, are we comfortable as Gamecocks? I mean, we're talking a lot about athletics this morning. Are we comfortable as Gamecocks? I mean, we talk a lot about half the state believes this and half the state believes that. Of the two major sports teams, let's for argument's sake say it's deep, it's divided right down the middle. Got half wearing orange, half wearing garnet. I get the the Shana Clears, the Paladins, and the Terriers, and the and the Bulldogs. I mean, I certainly do. But for argument's sake, we're, we're Clemson, Carolina State. Half the state has had one racial activist masquerading as a women's basketball coach, suggesting to the world. I mean, everybody that pays any attention that cares any about this that she's done an investigation that is better. I mean, I don't know how many times Dawn went to Provo. I don't know how many times she sent someone from the USC Athletic Department to Provo. I mean, I think I know the answer to that would be zero. But she's committed to convincing you that she didn't make a mistake when there's very little evidence suggesting that she didn't. She made a big, big faux pas, and nobody at the University of South Carolina will hold this racist women's basketball coach responsible. Shameful. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Someone on the phone. Let's go there. Boudreaux in Orangeburg, listening to WTQS. Hi, Boudreaux. Good morning. Um, I, I got a couple things I want to mention to you. I'll be very brief, as brief as I can. Um, I didn't hear. I heard the first segment about the shoes. All right, and I don't know if somebody else has mentioned this. So I, if so, I apologize. I had to tune out, tune away for a minute. But wasn't it a Nike shoe that blew out for Seventh Wood and messed his ankle up? I think that was Zion Williamson. Zion Williamson. Zion Williamson. Yeah. Yeah, I knew it was a big, you know, a big rookie that uh, his his Nike. I don't know if anybody mentioned that, but that was a Nike shoe blew out. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I, I just dropping that because I know you were talking about. Well, I know Nike knows how to do it. Well, sometimes Nike don't know how to do it either. But yeah. I've been I've been catching up on some of my presidential history. And, uh, of course, I, 
I'm not so sure that it wasn't that uh, what James Earl Fiss or Files that shot the President Kennedy in that grass. You know, he confessed to it. Um, but everybody was scared to go against the Warren Commission. But he confessed in the 90s that he did it. I don't know if you know anything about James Earl Files, but he he details exactly how he, he accomplished it and where, what he did afterwards and all that. Anyway, that's another that, that one I called about. You being a Jeffersonian, okay? Big fan of Thomas Jefferson. I got some Thomas Jefferson trivia for you. And uh, do you know what his favorite food was? Mmm. I, I would it guess. Was, was, I mean, it, I'm guessing something French. Um, well, not exactly. Well, he, he acquired the taste for it in Europe. It, now, it's common in America now, but back then it wasn't. Macaroni and cheese. Okay. He discovered it while in Europe, and it, he served it often at the White House. Now, he liked this Virginia ham, obviously. But, uh, but yeah, I was just looking up some – some of this is, is articles, some of this is YouTube videos, so you can take it with a grain of salt. But I thought as a big fan of Jefferson, I know your, your interest is in his politics and his philosophies, but uh, check on that and see if you can't find any evidence that that's a fact, that he was a, a macaroni and cheese connoisseur and served it uh, at dinner parties at the White House. Uh, anyway, that was all I had. But, uh, yeah, then Nike shoes will blow out on you, too. Thank you, Boudreaux. Appreciate that. Seems like I have read where Jefferson uh, discovered macaroni and cheese in Europe, brought it back to America, and almost forced people to eat it. You know, I mean, he was the president, and he was a big deal. I mean, this might have been prior to his becoming president when Washington sent him over to Europe to be basically our secretary of state before we called it secretary of state. Got an interesting uh, point to be made here this morning. Get back into the world of politics. I do want to talk a little bit about not Dawn Staley, but about what the media has done in, in response to finding out that may uh, the events they were so consumed by may not have even, in fact, happened. Uh, I want to go back. I, I, got a, I got a hypothetical question I want to pose to our listeners, but, but I'm going to set the table a little bit here, not with macaroni and cheese, but with some um, discussion about the monarchy. So for 70 years, we had a lady in charge of the monarchy, right? I mean, we're a woke, enlightened, kind of an anti-masculine society today. I don't know how gullible Europe has been to some of those um, practicalities, but in America, we're, we're more easily led uh, if a woman is in charge. In other words, you know, men in charge has become a bit offensive because you know how men are. I mean, they're masculine and they're, they're obsessed with power and, you know, um, they do it the way they want to do it, come hell or high water. Um, so for 70 years... There's been kind of a an entrancement of the monarch. I wonder what it's going to be like now that we have a dude. I mean, the Queen of England is a little bit, uh, I mean, obviously it's less masculine, but it's a little bit less threatening than the King of England. All of a sudden, we, we wake up one day and have a King of England. Got a dude now running the monarchy. And you know how we feel about dudes in, in leadership. I mean, we excluded women from the right to vote and uh, become leaders and they couldn't run companies. And, you know, the, um, the socioeconomic ladder stopped here for women and it went continually upward for men. Uh, there's some truth to that. I mean, no question about it. Uh, we didn't allow women to vote. But, but I just wonder after 70 years of an evolving society, what the response will be now that there's a dude in charge. In other words, the Queen of England, probably not as offensive as potentially the King of England could be. Okay, talked about Jefferson a second ago. When you go back and read some of Jefferson's writings, when you really discover the, the, um, 
the reasons for the Civil War, and I read a good bit about this over the weekend. I actually had someone send me an article, history professor that didn't on this show, sent me an article um, suggesting that Jefferson and uh, the 13 original colonies, their beef was not really with the king. It was with Parliament. So, so the argument is that there's some, there's some um, political theorists out there that are espousing the view that Jefferson, Hamilton, Madison, Franklin, um, Adams were not that bothered by the king. The monarch was a long-running government, consistency of government, um, in the lack of a dictatorship, didn't require a lot of um, compromising and, you know, m- kind of making the sausage. That's what we call it here in America. I mean, if a queen or king decided on a political issue, that was it. I mean, that was the end of it. But when you go back and look at some of the language in Jefferson's early writings, it was a large, I mean, they're, they're, they make some good points here. And I, once again, I don't believe Jefferson was crazy about a king, but they make some valid points that a lot of his rationale was the, the inefficiencies of the parliament, the British parliament. Um, now, the king was the king was the king. I'm not excusing, uh, I'm not passing along the, you know, taxation without representation to the parliament. But, but a lot of the founders in their writings were the uncertainty a parliamentary form of government brings along, the frustration that a parliamentary government brings along. Um, I actually read, uh, uh, you know, 22 reasons monarchy is the best form of government. I mean, there was a guy at Harvard that did a research paper on here are the 22 reasons that America should be curious about whether or not to have a monarchy form of government. Now, now once again, we're a republic and a hereditary monarchy flies in the face of republicanism. But but here's the question I want to pose. For argument's sake, this is kind of a hypothetical. I mean, it's completely and totally hypothetical. What if we Americans had a chance to choose a king tomorrow? Who would your choice be? I mean, if we're going to scrap the government, the government sucks, doesn't work, <laughs> Republicans are stupid, Democrats are crooks, um, you know, one extreme, another extreme, all these imperfections of republicanism. If we're going to scrap representative republics, throw it in the trash and replace it with a monarch. Now, now once again, the, the monarchy in the monarchy in Great Britain is largely symbolic ceremonial, right? Um, the House of Lords is where the policy is made. That's where the uh, the Englishmen and women make their sausage, so to speak. We've got the Senate and Congress. They've got the the House of Lords, uh, upper and lower chambers. So, but but think about this, guys. If we had an opportunity tomorrow to elect a king, we're not deciding between a monarchy and a representative republic. We scrap representative republics. All of this is hypothetical, but play along with me. You got four hours. Um, so we've decided, we had a referendum in 2020, and out of that referendum, 57% of Americans said they're so frustrated by the confusion, the, the lack of vision, the corrupted political parties, the duopoly that has failed the country, we're going to try something different. And we read a lot of what Jefferson said, and we read a lot of what Hamilton said, and we read a lot about what, um, what, what the, the strengths of a, mon- of a monarchy could be. And we're going to elect, not a president, not a senator, not a congressman, but a king that stays in charge of the country until his death. Who would that be? Forget the hereditary part of it. I mean, that's asking too much. Yeah. I mean, you really got to because there's no elections that. in monarchy. Co- correct. I mean, it's it's um. I mean, it's hereditary. I mean, you know, you're the. I mean, you're 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 groomed to be a leader. 
I mean, the, you know, anybody in the royal family has been groomed in the event of, you know, being in that role of responsibility, which is largely symbolic and ceremonial. But I think we, we agreed yesterday, or I think we agreed, that the beauty of the queen, I mean, there's no doubt about it, that, that the monarchy, that the queen's leadership uh, resided over a lot of colonialism. A lot of people, um, I mean, they're, you know, disparity in wealth and disparity in opportunity. I mean, you know, did the queen do anything about that? I mean, she talked a lot, but but by and large, uh, the, the colonial the, the colonialism that was at the beginning of her reign um, didn't offer much human rights. And she did very little in regards to that. Now, you could argue, well, that's not really her role. Uh, that's not her responsibility. Uh, okay. Um, but we did conclude, or I think we concluded, that the one thing she did that we'll give all give her a lot of credit for, but because once again, guys, she was not only, I mean, I wrote it down yesterday, she was not just a mother, grandmother, wife, and friend. She was also a monarch. And that monarchy, I mean, she's head of state of over 30 countries in the 70 years. Um, and hereditary monarchy flies in the face of republicanism. I mean, I think we could all agree with that. But, but we've scrapped republicanism. I mean, we're no longer a representative republic. We are now a monarchy ourselves. Who do you want to be the king or queen? I mean, I've got a guess. Mm. I mean, I, you know, I thought about it a little bit writing over this morning. I mean, this is this will be pretty easy to predict. I mean, I think right now in America, Peter Thiel would be the guy that I would nominate as king of America. Not now, once again, it cuts both ways. I think we've had a lot of conversation with some of our smart listeners about, I don't know, man, those guys scare me. I get it. I get it. It may be the worst decision we can ever make. What would be interesting to me is what traits would you find important in a good king? And As I opposed think, to picking the person. But, but don't you agree with this? You would find different traits and characteristics uh, more appealing than I would. I mean, I, I you know, I, I like scary smart. Some would say, well, I don't know, man. I mean, scary smart people end up in bad. I, I, mm -hmm. I, I, that worries me. Um, I can hear right now my brother-in-law. Uh, if I said scary and smart, no, 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 no. We don't need a scary smart guy running this thing. I mean, that, those are the worst kind of people imaginable. They're a lot of fun. I mean, you're in the business of talk radio. Having a scary smart king would be real entertaining because he would do things that you would expect to be done. But, but just think of this for a second. I mean, if you had an opportunity today to appoint slash elect a king of America, who would it be? Let's do this. Let's be more fair-minded. What would be the requirements? What would be the skill set you're looking for? I mean, I'm on the record. Scary smart, I like. Scary smart, I understand. Some don't. I mean, I, I certainly understand why some would say, I don't know, man. I mean, that teal guy. I mean, I don't doubt his intellect. Well, if you do, you're crazy. I mean, you know, most people say, I get it, man. He's a really, really bright guy. He has a lot of innovative ideas. Um, he's obviously not afraid to get in the fray. But, but those kind of guys, man, they just always end up not doing what you expected them to do, but rather something you didn't expect them to do. But if we had a chance to elect a king today at high noon, who would it be as far as you're concerned? Let's go to the phone. Here is Larry in the PD. Good morning, Larry. Good morning. Here's how you do it. You ready? Mm-hmm. Go, go get a phone book. Start flipping pages. <laughs> when you feel good and ready... Stop. Point to the first thing you see. Pray to God that he is absolutely or she is absolutely average in every single way. 
that's who your king should be. Why is that, Larry? Because when you start packing in all of these extreme personality traits, like super high intelligence or unbelievable courage or whatever, there's always such an extreme negative that goes along with it. In any case, I mean, you just just look at personality studies, and they'll tell you the world is run by average intelligence people, and and, and because I think it should be that you don't need somebody with wild extremes in there at all. Uh, people that are you know hyper intelligent can also be really paranoid, or they can get really sure that everything they think is right. And no, no, thank you. I do not want the guy who is the smartest guy in the room. I know that's crazy. The guy that's the smartest guy in the room, I want him handling my drinking water. I don't want him handling the country. Interesting. Kind of an interesting – I mean, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I think that that is as um, that is reasonable as – reasonable. thank you, Larry. That's as reasonable a position as I would hold. I just – I mean, I host a radio show. And and if you if you take the 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 thirty seventh page third column ninth name out of the phone book, that's not going to be good for my business. <laughs> you know, I mean if you if you put somebody of average intelligence, of average work ethic, of average, uh, what am I trying to say here? I mean every quality about them is average. I mean I, yeah, I mean I, I hear what Larry's saying. I don't disagree with that. But but in my field of entertainment slash political expertise. Someone like Teal would be far more interesting, engaging, entertaining, provocative, um, all the necessary agreements for, shall I say, high ratings. Let's, 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 let's go to the phone. That, after all, let's, is the goal. Let's go to the phone. Nick. Well, I mean, for four hours a day it is. It absolutely is. Let's go to the phone. Nick in Lexington. Hello, Nick. Uh, good morning. My first criteria would be you don't want to be king. Okay. Yeah. There, there you go. Uh, yeah. And the, uh, I think Thomas Sowell. That would be an interesting selection. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah, Thomas Sowell is a very um, thoughtful, conservative, political mind. Someone who has opined uh, very eloquently on the political theories and political nuances and, and political discussions in modern America. Uh, I just think it's an interesting, look, I don't have to say this. You know this. There is no right answer. I mean, Larry's no more right than I am. I'm no more right than Mike is. Mike is no more wrong than uh, than Boudreaux. I mean, there, there is no right answer to who needs to be king of America. But but in reading some of the founders and, and being challenged a little bit, you know, I've always felt that the founders were pointing their finger directly at the king. You, king, you. They, they were to some degree, but, but a lot of their concern and consternation was based on the parliament's failure. I mean, the British Parliament was not executing its duties as they perceived them to be, and the, the colonists felt they were getting kind of left out of the shuffle when it came to that. 843-661-0937. I mean, there's a couple of questions out there. Who would you elect king of America today if, if that's where we were, and what sort of um, skill set are we looking for? Let's go to the phone. Tony, Calhoun County, listening to WTQS. Hello, Tony. Good morning, gentlemen. Um, I think the most important criterion for a king would be someone whose neck fits into the guillotine just nicely. Because one of the benefits of a monarchy is when things go wrong, you know who to blame. Correct. We have a democracy. We have, you can't take 218 House of Representative members and 51 senators to the guillotine. You can take one king to the guillotine. So I think we should do that. 
Tony, you're stealing my thunder. Thank you. Appreciate the call. I actually had notes made to myself. When, when, when things go south and a monarchy, it's the king's fault. I mean, I'm talking about in a governing monarchy. I'm not talking about a symbolic, a ceremonial monarchy like the British Empire. But when, well, I mean, the British Empire would have had a king with, with ultimate authority. But, but I'm talking about in modern Great Britain. I mean, it's a parliamentary government. Uh, the, the king is a figurehead. The queen was a figurehead. Uh, they carry some weight, but they don't vote on policies. Uh, I think the interesting part of the king or the queen debate yesterday is when I read over the weekend uh, when when Europe, excuse me, when England agreed to leave the European Union via Brexit, it was kind of a political surprise. I mean, it was a shockwave. Uh, it really, in retrospect, kind of been the reason that most people should have believed that Donald Trump was going to be a, a reasonable, realistic candidate for president in 2020. I mean, Brexit kind of like made us aware of how frustrated people were with the establishment. Um, 60% of people who supported Brexit said they would have changed their mind had the queen asked them to. So, yeah, I mean, she was ceremonial and symbolic, but she still had a lot of political sway and influence on a certain generation, I would imagine, Rev, of the people of England and Great Britain. But, but, But she remained, and I think this is probably her greatest legacy or her most positive legacy is her ability to remain by and large neutral in political affairs. But, but here's the problem with Republicanism or a representative Republic or a, um, a quasi democracy. When things go South, I point my finger at you and you point your finger at me. I mean, it, when we have $31 trillion of student, uh, excuse me, federal debt and 1.7 trillion in student debt, and we can't get out of our own way. And, you know, the left's bringing the white, not the right, the right's bringing, blaming the left. And, you know, um, certain ethnic groups are angry with other certain ethnic groups. And um, th- there's political points to be scored if this passes and that doesn't pass. And how does this affect the midterms? And how does this policy affect the general election? Let's wait till after the midterm before we start talking about abortion. I mean, you, you hear all that. And, um, and, and it's almost like that, that's Rev's fault, not mine. I mean, if they would do what I said do, the country would be far better off. And Rev could say, no, I mean, the reason we're not as well off as we should be, they've not let me do enough of what I need to do as Ken and some of those Republicans who have gotten in the way. When, when we've got a monarchy, a functioning monarchy, a governing monarchy, um, they're the boss. And when things go south, th- there's not a lot of finger pointing. No, I mean, you know. Where's the guillotine? How big is what is what Tony said? Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a second. Um, if you were allowed to pick the king of America or the queen of America, who would it be and, and I think, why? I think Mike put that question up on Facebook. If you'd like to put your answer there. There you go. Or call us. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our long, number. Long live Peter Thiel. Oh, <laughs> when I can really? see it now on a shirt. Long live Peter Thiel. There's one thing about Peter Thiel. I mean, he's not the average guy, right? I mean, I get Larry's point. Uh, Someone texted me a second ago. A lot of the beauty of Queen Elizabeth, I mean, nobody believed that she was a rocket scientist. I mean, she was a very gracious lady, very dignified lady, won the Ovarian lottery by, you know, without question. Uh, There were certain things that she was very uncomfortable speaking about in state matters because she didn't feel, um, dare I say, intelligent or informed enough about intimidation would have been a big part of that. You know, I don't want to sit down in this room with all these, you know, really bright political minds because I'm not sure I can hold my own. Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, someone like Teal would be dangerous because he does always feel. I mean, let's say this. I mean, I think Larry would agree to this. More times than not, Teal's going to be the smartest guy in the room, right? I mean, if he's not the smartest guy in the room, 
um, you're in a pretty exclusive room. What is that worth? See, my intrigue with Teal is not his raw intellectual horsepower. I mean, it's the dark side. I mean, I'll level with you. That, that's kind of a risky bet. <laughs> I mean, that, there, there's no doubt about it. That is a very risky proposition to pursue. But my intrigue with Teal is not because I think he's one of the, the brightest one half of 1% people on the planet. I mean, I think we've, we, we all pretty much agree to that, right? I mean, the guy made 1600 on SAT, took it again just to see if that, you know, he could do it. So he took the SAT twice and made 1600 both times, graduated top of his class at Stanford. So nobody's denying that he has the intellectual horsepower to think through whatever issues come his way. My intrigue is more that he does have this dark side, that, that he does have this bent gene about him that seems to embrace controversy and conflict. Is, is that a good reason? Maybe not for you, but for me at this moment in political history, and there would probably be a day if we were doing better and our nation's financial affairs were in a better place and the government was a little better trusted or a little better positioned to have the trust of the American people, I probably wouldn't want Teal there. But, but I think we need, you know, major and massive exposure and reform. And I just don't believe the average guy in the phone book is going to do that. I think if we start from scratch, you know, if there's no ill will or goodwill built up and everybody's going to get the fairest shake, we know how to give everybody in that said phone book, then I'm for that because I think we probably end up in a better place. But because we've gotten ourselves in a position of a failure, I think we need dark shadowy. And I think Jill's probably as, as smart, dark, and shadowy as anybody we've discussed or anybody I'm aware of in the political world. Let's go to the phone. Charles in Florence. Good morning, Charles. Morning, gentlemen. Um, I've been thinking about it, and I think the number one person would be myself. Sounds reasonable. And I, and I don't, sure. sounds, I don't sounds very sound, humble, I'm, too. <laughs> humility is my strong trait. Uh, actually, it's because I'm the only one I trust. Mm. And I think, so my mind goes towards a Bill Bennett, uh, Newt Gingrich type of person. But I think, Teal, to your point, you know, Trump had a lot of success with the fact that he was not going to avoid controversy. And if you have a king or a leader who's going to shy away from controversy— they're going to make decisions that aren't based on what's the best. It's going to be what what's the least path of resistance. So also I'd like to throw in a nomination for Kobe Bryant. So I'll let you guys go. Thank you, sir. The late Kobe Bryant. Appreciate that. Um, kind of interesting. Thank you so, for your call, your highness. Yeah, by the way. You're such a humble man. Uh, we can relate. <laughs> um, so do you want someone who is um, controversial? Or, or do you not want someone who is controversial? Uh, the, the, the caller said something about, you know, I'm the only person I trust. I mean, honesty and integrity has to be a big part of that, right? Um, how, we'll go back to Teal for a second. I mean, that's my guy. Um, I'm not sure how much integrity Teal has. I'm not sure how honest Teal is. I don't have any idea. I've always believed if you end up on the good side of multiple billions of dollars and you didn't win the lottery, that there's something back there. You know what I mean? Uh, it's almost like as the scale of economic success uh, increases, the likelihood that you're virtuous, uh, <laughs> you can't integrity do that with your, honest, your integrity I mean, intact. I, I, I don't know. I, I I don't think you can, but I think to some degree you hold on to a certain core value you have. I'm not saying you sell every bit of your soul to the devil, but but no. I mean, I think if you, I mean, Teal's different. Uh, Musk is different. I mean, these guys are unique in that 
Warren Buffett said one day that I'm a white man good at math. A white man good at math born in prehistoric times would have probably been a hunter-gatherer. But a white man good at math in the era I was born gave me a, a, a significant increase in likelihood that I succeed financially. Bill Gates. I mean, Bill Gates won these math contests. He didn't, I mean, I think he won, I mean, somebody said six. I, he didn't play six. He won like six national math contests. So Bill Gates uh, is a white man, a white male American, good in math. That's a pretty good head start, right? I mean, in today's world, I mean, if you're a white male American, real good in math, the likelihood that you end up on the good side of finance is much better than if you are somebody who's not white male American and good in math. I'm not saying that nobody else can make it and everybody white male American who's good in math makes it. I'm not arguing that. I'm arguing on the, on the percentages. You know, percentages are more likely. Um, someone with a sound financial mind. I mean, how important is that? I mean, I get the moral compass. I get the integrity and the virtue. But, but how important is it? And are we asking somebody to, I mean, my point, and maybe I'm not being clear here, the point I'm making is somebody takes over today. We're not starting a new nation. I mean, we're not wiping the debt slate clean. We're not, you know, all the untrustworthiness people have of government is still there. I mean, the exact same public that are aware of America's government today are being asked to reconsider. We've already decided to reconsider. We've already thrown republicanism in the trash. We're electing a king, but the king has to come in and deal with all the political realities of America right now. I mean, it'd be different if we were starting from scratch. No debt, you know, no goodwill, no badwill, no distrust, no trust, no, no, you know, duopoly, no Republican history or Democrat history. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that, that I would probably have a different opinion if we were starting from scratch. But somebody walks in or walks on the throne. They walk into the Oval <laughs> House. They walk on the throne tomorrow dealing with all the political realities of America today. I, I want somebody very controversial. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. Probably the only one that could get us out of this mess if you made him king would be Victor Davis Hampson. I think he's probably one of the smartest intellects we've got today, and he is grounded in religion. I mean, he understands the whole right and wrong, dark light. But just just as a side note, I know you were talking earlier about the uh, the volleyball game. That was a televised game, by the way. So they had all the cameras all around that arena, and none of the camera angles showed anybody reacting. You know, if you heard somebody hollering the N-word constantly, somebody would react. But that's neither here nor there. But, yeah, Victor Davis Hanson, if we were to to elect a king, him or, or Ben Carson would be my two top picks. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. Um, yeah, I mean, th- th- those are, I mean, th- th- those are really, really bright men, uh, really grounded in their faith and religion. I was thinking about Teal a second ago. Uh, nobody mistakes Teal for a religious crusader, right? I mean, he talks very little about his, um, I mean, what religion means to him. And I mean, he, I don't know that Teal's a secularist. I mean, he appears to be. I'm, I'm being judgmental here from afar. He's a gay man. Mm. Do we want a gay king? 
We've had them before. <laughs> they didn't talk much about it, but we're pretty sure we've had them before. Let's go to the phone. Here is Richard in Bryson City, North Carolina. Hey, Richard, you're on the air. Hey, how you doing today? Uh, I think that's an interesting question. Uh, I, we've got a, two books of history called First and Second King in the Bible, and it shows that uh, that good men that they would put become king, complete power corrupts. And you never know who a man is by what he says today, but when you give him complete power, there's no telling what he may do. Have a good day. Thank you, Richard. Good to hear from you. Hadn't heard from Richard in a long, long, long time. Um, does, the, does the monarch become more corrupt than our federal government? I mean, let, let's let's back up a half step and let's say, okay, for the last hundred years, we've allowed the duopoly to insist and require us to do certain things via policy and edict and order and po- you know, I mean, they're, they're in charge. I mean, the government passes laws and regulations, and we largely go by those laws and regulations. Um, would the king, if allowed, or queen, if allowed, to do those same sorts of governing functions, be any more corrupted than our political system is today? I mean, obviously one person, you're, you're rolling the dice on this person. I mean, how many of you agree with this? I mean, just kind of think out loud. How many of you agree that in theory, in theory only, a benevolent dictator is the best form of government or a benevolent dictatorship is the best form of government? I mean, if you've got a, a grounded, sincere, honest, dedicated, smart dictator, what better form of government could we ever come up with or imagine than that? We've got this person, this man or woman, but they're committed to doing the right thing. They're honest. Uh, they're, they're, they're full of integrity. They're virtuous people. They're grounded, not in just political philosophy, but, but they've entrenched themselves in a, in a subservient role to the higher power, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're a servant. I mean, they're a servant to God that they, they believe that this role and responsibility that has been entrusted or bestowed upon them is, is simply nothing but a gift from God. And they are not to squander this. I mean, what better form of government, theoretically or hypothetically, is there than that? Right? I mean, would you agree to that, Rev? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, I mean it's, it's hard to kind of say sure. that because I prefer the representative well, I mean, republic. But, 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 let, let, but let's make the assumption that there's this one person that, that is out there, that, that is bright, they're of integrity, they're virtuous, uh, they're with character, all these checks in the boxes that we, in other words, we vote for a guy because he's honest, he's smart, he's dedicated, uh, he believes in God, he understands fiscal restraint. Uh, all of us have these checks in boxes. We may not, we may not do it. I mean, we do it subconsciously. I mean, you may not say, hey, I've got this scorecard and I'm not voting for a guy unless he gets seven of 10 answers right. You know what I mean? Is he honest? Is he smart? Is he uh, of integrity? Is he married? I mean, I know a lot of people who put a lot of, you know, uh, the, the fallacy of a single person. I mean, I, I've got people in my world that say, you know, I like that guy, but it worries me that he's not married. I'm not voting for someone who's not married. Why wouldn't you vote for somebody who's not married? Because he really hadn't encountered the real world yet. He hadn't dealt with how to raise kids and, and you know, got to put himself in the back seat and those ones he loves in the front seat, you know, caring for a child is kind of a humbling experience. I mean, I get all of that, but I'll go back to the benevolent dictator argument. I mean, if we found a person who met all that criteria, you don't believe that'd be better than 435 people saying grace over whatever the problems are. You get the luxury of blaming me. I get the luxury of blaming you. The American people don't really know who to blame. 
But if I've got this dictator and he's benevolent, odds are he's going to do the right thing more than not. So, you know, we'd probably chug along in a better direction as a nation than we would you blaming me and me blaming you. Let's go to the phone. Bruce in Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning, Bruce. Good morning. Uh, since the king or the queen is basically a figurehead and the prime minister really has all the power, why don't we have Alfred E. Newman for king and Bozo the Clown as king consort? But for prime minister, uh, we want somebody that's got some power and some guts behind them and uh, have uh, Dirty Harry Callahan because if Xi Jinping or Putin or the Ayatollah was to say to us or threaten us, uh, we know that Dirty Harry would say, well, do you feel lucky, punk? Well, do you? I mean, you know, so. Go ahead, make there, my there, day. Yeah, go ahead and make my day. There you go. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. Uh, it's a hypothetical question. I mean, obviously, we're not trashing the duopoly. I mean, we're not going to throw, I mean, we're not going to, there, there's not going to be any legislation come out of Washington uh, late this afternoon that says, hey, um, we kind of like the way this transition of power, which is really no power in Great Britain has happened and transpired. So we're going to follow in suit. We've given, uh, we've given this duopoly ample time to sort out its differences, to work through its disagreements, to get the country in a better place, and it's failed miserably. So we had this contract, and they've not met the stipulations of the contract, so the contract gets thrown up, to, thrown in the trash. We're going a new way. I mean, I, I just think hypothetically, as we replace Queen Elizabeth with King, uh, what's his name again? Charles. Yeah, King Charles. Uh, that's how the I third. know about. Yeah, King Charles the Third. There you go. Um, the guy that married way over his head, and then she, mis- you know, very unfortunately passed away. Um, when was that? Labor Day weekend, twenty years ago. Yeah, uh, ninety-seven. Twenty-five years ago. Yeah. Wow. Ninety-seven. Yeah. So, Lady Di's been dead twenty-five years. Wow. Didn't know that. Um, 843-661-0937. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Yeah, I just told our sales manager today probably wouldn't be a good day to go see Younger Armor about being sponsor of this feeble attempt at Radio Brigance. Uh, maybe go see Nike or Adidas, but not probably the day you need to go see Under Armour. Uh, I'm speculating, completely in total speculation when I argue that it seems to me that's where I would investigate if they've not already investigated and get some questions answered. Someone said earlier, man, I just wish sports could be sports. Join the club. I mean, I certainly do as well. But, you know, you, you got to argue points that are forced uh, your way. In other words, CNN, the New York Times, the, uh, believe it or not, ESPN. Wow. I mean, that's hard to believe it, that, that ESPN would, abs- you know, would jump on the wagon or the bandwagon of Don Staley um, condemning BYU. I want to tell you, I, mean, I want to read verbatim, not my word or not their words, excuse me, not my words, but rather theirs, about this incident that was alleged to have happened, um, can't be corroborated. Don Staley says, I've done my own investigating, and I stand by the decision to not play BYU. Is there a contractual obligation? I'm learning that it's iffy at best. In other words, backing out of this home and home series with BYU probably does not (sighs) initiate a legal hearing or some sort of lawsuit, one party against the other. But but the commentary is still very interesting. Um, CNN's Allison, what is it, Camerata, said mm-hmm. yesterday or the day before, what does it say, excuse me, um, in, the, in the few moments or the few days that followed the accusations, Camerata said, what does it say about the BYU community and culture that this happened? Well, it didn't happen. So where's the apology? 
What does this say about the BYU community and culture that this happened? I mean, as Allison Camerata apologized to BYU, not that I've heard of, um, her cohort, Brianna Keller at CNN. You want to know what she said? A Division I volleyball match at Brigham Young University turned really ugly when black players from Duke University endured racial, racial slurs from at least one fan in the crowd. I mean, that's leaving you some way, at least one fan in the crowd. Um, that's another, you know, talking head at CNN. Mm. The New York Times is not to be outdone. Um, in fact, here are their quote. Marvin Richardson, the father of the Duke volleyball player, said in an interview late Saturday that a slur was repeatedly yelled from the stands as his daughter was serving, making her fear, quote, the raucous crowd could grow violent. The Times tagged on that BYU's student population is less than 1% black. So, of course, they're racist. I mean, if BYU's population or student population is less than 1%, then everybody is racist. They've done everything they do or everything they could do to keep minorities and African-Americans in particular out of that. BYU has struggled. The New York Times continues with creating an inclusive environment for its students of color. How do you know that? Go find an African-American student at BYU and ask them if BYU has struggled to create this environment of its students of color. Mike Freeman, a columnist for USA Today's, um, and he's actually, this is bizarre to me, USA Today has a a job, the face and equality editor for sports. (laughs) At one of the national publications, USA Today, he says, um, dereliction of duty blasted the university for not addressing it with a level of quickness and speed that you would have normally addressed these sorts of issues with. Holly Rowe of ESPN had a lot to say. Uh, let, let's kind of go back. Uh, let's, I want to continue this conversation on the other side. Back in a minute. Hour number three, 843-661-0937, um, talking about the king. We talked a lot about it. I just posed that hypothetical. I made a note to myself yesterday. Uh, we played Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers yesterday. We didn't comment on it because I wanted to see how quick our audience would get to it. Petty's got a song, Good to be King, If Only for a While to sit there in velvet and give them a smile. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it'd be good to be king if only for a while. You'd probably get tired of it after a while. I saw this morning, they're actually, um, they've got these body language experts deciding what sort of body interaction uh, these two, what what is it? Um, Help me with the names. I mean, you would know better than I would. William and Harry. William and Harry are married to... Uh, Kate and Megan. Kate and Megan. And they're kind of celebrities, right? I mean, yeah. these two, uh, which one gave up the royalty? Which one Harry said, I'm out of here? Harry and Meghan. And so, so Harry and Meghan, or nor, they're, they're no longer heirs to the throne, so to speak. I mean, you can think. you just, so, so what do you do? Sign a contract saying, I'm out of here? Uh-huh. You know, I don't want to be any part of that. Here's what I'd have done. You ready? I wouldn't have signed anything. I'd have moved to California, but I'd have kept that deal in place <laughs> just in case somebody dies sooner than I thought they would. Good to be king, if only for a while, right? Mm-hmm. Sit there in velvet and I give guess. them a smile. Um, Dr. Will uh-huh. Bolt is with us. I, I want to kind of go down the road. I want to, let, let's, let's, let's take a deep breath and get serious here for a second. So, so some of what I've read over the weekend leads me to believe. Now, now once again, this is a faculty member at Harvard, a fellow academic, and he gives about a four-minute dissertation as to why he believes 
the the colonists led by some of the um some of the writings of Jefferson, some of the political thought of Madison and Adams, he believes that their frustration was was as much to do with the British Parliament as it was the king. You say what? I think he's in in many ways he's right. The Declaration of Independence, which makes the break complete and permanent, and ripping off the Band-Aid, if you will. It's all the grievances against the king. And, of course, the the reason why the declaration is aimed at King George III is this is the last link, the last thing that's still tying the colonists to the mother country. And, of course, prior to the declaration, for more than 10 years, the colonists had been grumbling and complaining about the policies of Parliament, all of the, the taxation policies. And, of course, you know, the watchword, the motto was no taxation without representation. And against ever since 1763-64, the, the colonists had been asking, hey, just give us a voice. We're good, humble British citizens. We will pay our taxes. We don't mind. That's not the rub. Just give us a couple of votes in Parliament. And Parliament refused to do it, dug in their feet. And so after tilting at that windmill, if you will, for more than 10 years, the colonists had realized they're not going to listen to us. And we're not going to get any relief. Any Parliament is not going to listen to our grievances. It's, it's time to go, and the last thing that's keeping us to the mother country is our allegiance to the king, so it's time to cut that cord as well. If the king had leaned on parliament, would anything have been different? In other words, if parliament said no oh. to the colonists, but the king had intervened and said, look, guys, they have a point. I mean, I'm afraid we're going to fight a war and lose a war, and they'll become the preeminent superpower <laughs> in 250 years. <laughs> let's stop this. Let's, as Barney Five said, let's nip this in the bud right now. Had the king intervened, would it have been likely that Parliament gave in? Oh, for sure, because he kept dozens, maybe hundreds, of members of so Parliament. So the Parliament was doing the king's bidding. No, they were on the take. Most of these guys were bri- <laughs> dirty and were being bribed by the king. Oh, for sure. And and the patriots here, of course, knew that. Okay. We 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 formed the Declaration of Independence. We make the clean break. We fight the Revolutionary War. We win. And it becomes our time to form a government. What did we learn about the the king? in relation to the roles and responsibilities of the first American president. Well, of course, right, if you immediately during the American Revolution and then after, many states rewrite their constitutions, and they're very, very wary at first of executive authority. Several states didn't even have an executive. The original governing document, the Articles of Confederation, had no president, no no chief executive. In the states that did have a governor, uh, he didn't have the veto power, right? He couldn't make appointments. Uh, If he was going to get a salary, the only way he would get paid would be if the legislature passed a special bill giving him money. So essentially the the governor was, he was going to have to do the bidding of the legislature in order to get paid. So not much of a separation of powers there. So we quickly kind of realized this, this model doesn't work. There has to be some type of an executive authority. And of course we rectify this with the constitution. And Washington, um, was it obvious and apparent that he was going to be the guy that needed to be the first American president? Sure. Everybody realized if there was one guy you could trust with power, it was George Washington. And of course, uh, one of the great stories is it's called the Newburgh Conspiracy. Uh, While Washington is waiting for the official treaties to be ratified by the United States and Great Britain, he still has to keep an army in the field. And the soldiers are upset. They haven't been paid in months And so a group of them outside of New York City hatch a conspiracy called the Newburgh Conspiracy. And Washington finds out about this, and he busts in. He crashes one of their secret meetings. 
And Washington realizes he's a he's a pilgrim in an unholy land because when he walks in, none of the officers stand up. There's this this awkward silence. And some historians say this is Washington's greatest moment. Uh, he walks to the front of the room and says, gentlemen, I'd like to have a few remarks I'd like to deliver. And Washington pulls his speech out, and before he starts to read, uh, he pulls out his glasses. And he says, gentlemen, you will forgive me. I have gone not only gray in defense of my country, but also nearly blind. And Washington tells him of all the sacrifices they've made, and that if they go through with their plot to essentially march the army on the Capitol, it will unravel the American Revolution. And if democracy fails here, it'll fail everywhere. And so Washington delivers this speech, and as he exits the room, all the officers stand up and applaud, and it's three cheers for the commanding general. And then when the revolution ends, Washington goes to Congress, and he surrenders his sword. He resigns his commission, says, I just want to go back to my home, my farm of Mount Vernon, and he establishes the precedent there that the military will always be subordinate to civilian officials. So at any point in the revolution, Washington could have taken the army uh, on a joyride, taken over the government, and set himself up, but he didn't do that. So when it comes to the formation of America, why does Washington not get the respect of those who believe Jefferson was more instrumental? Sure. Madison, Adams, Hamilton. Um, why, and I'm not saying we relegate Washington to, to the general status. I mean, but, but, but why doesn't he get the, the notoriety of intelligentsia when it comes to America's founding? Well, Washington wasn't this great political philosopher. He didn't spend all of his time sipping wine, reading Voltaire in Montesquieu like a lot of the other guys. He was a pragmatist and kind of cut in the same vein as a lot of other military figures who became uh, important political figures, such as Andrew Jackson, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, Ronald Reagan. Harry Truman. Harry Truman, absolutely. Guys who just knew how to get you-know-what done and knew how to twist the arms and knew how to uh, play the game of politics, if you will. And so Washington would have been very, very comfortable at these fancy dinner parties where they're talking about the figures of the Enlightenment. He tolerated Jefferson. They were both Virginians. But again, these guys really didn't have much in common. So how did they perceive Washington? When Jefferson, Hamilton, Madison, and Adams got together for a glass of wine <laughs> yeah. and talking about Locke and, and you know, the, the <laughs> Leviathan and all these other sorts of um, political philosophies. And, and I think you would agree that those were political theorists. They were necessary. Yep, sure. I mean, they, they, they spoke and rode our country into existence. What did they think of Washington as the first American president? Well, they just realized that he was he was the man, that he was popular. So they were supportive. The sure, but again, they knew that they had to. If they were trying to undermine George Washington at this time, the hero, the father of his country, it would be political suicide. So you attach yourself to Washington. It's the smart thing to do politically. And it's one of those great moments in American history, almost speaks to the exceptional nature, almost that there was something unique or a divine inspiration for the United States. When all the electors meet to cast their ballot for president the first time, there was no coordination. But on the same day, everybody cast their first ballot for George Washington. It was unanimous. There's a whole scattering of votes for vice president, which gives it eventually to John Adams. But again, there was no, nobody was on Facebook. Nobody was coordinating this. Every elector got together the same day, 
and everybody cast their first vote for George Washington. Okay, if we elected Washington, the non-political theorist as our first president, yeah. why did we elect Adams and Jefferson as our second <laughs> or third when they were the consummate political theorist sure. philosopher? Well, again, they kind of played the game. All right, we're just kind of getting in line. We're going to bide our time. Adams was the vice president. Didn't really screw up too, too much. Just kind of kept a low profile. And then Washington, again, set the key precedent. There were no term limits at the time. He decided to term limit himself. Exactly, and figured my health was failing. It would be bad for the country if I died in office. All right, let me just bow out gracefully, and we're going to have a smooth, peaceful transition of power. And that's exactly what happened. The testament, the greatness of Washington. And many presidential ranking polls still put Washington as number one because he's the guy. He was the right guy at the right time. He established all of the precedents. Had you had maybe a rabble-rouser, a great thinker such as Thomas Jefferson as number one, who knows what course we would have gone down. So Washington, been, could, could, Is there a potential? I mean, this would be a, a speculative debate. What if? But Jefferson, would it have been possible for Jefferson to appoint himself king? <laughs> Jefferson, I think, no. Did, there were most of these guys, anything that kind of smacked of monarchy, they was like, uh-uh, this, this isn't for me. They had just fought the war about it. They had grown to utterly despise the English king. So again, Jefferson maybe privately would have craved a little bit more power, but certainly uh, had the political sense that the people wouldn't have tolerated it at that time. Okay, here's the question then, Mr. History (laughs) Professor Extraordinaire, History Chair at Francis Mary University. So if, if everybody felt the same way about the monarchy and the kingship, why didn't we institute term limits? Why was there, was there a debate early on in American history of term limiting some of the, I mean, once again, Washington implemented his own term limits. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the form of government or, or the, the design of our government did not institute any sort of term limit, even for the executive branch. Why? Well, a lot of the Americans, there was a, a common saying that would say tyranny begins when annual elections end. And the thought was you need to have annual elections. We kind of got away from that, right? We elect House members for two years, presidents for four, senators for six. But again, of course, in the 1780s, 1790s, you didn't have the longevity that we had nowadays. Uh, And there were a lot of individuals who thought once you got to 70, sort of the going back to the biblical notion, this is when you bow off of this, if you even make it to 70. So guys making it into their 70s, 80s, and still holding office, that was certainly a, a very rare thing. So again, the idea of term limiting somebody really wasn't in the minds of many at that time would it be in the minds of those today i mean if jefferson adams madison washington hamilton convened at a courtyard marriott in columbia south carolina next friday afternoon at four o'clock would they put term limits on the table possibly but jefferson also jefferson was the elitist and jefferson said well if you get a good guy in there who knows what he's doing if he wants to serve six terms in the Senate for 36 years, then that's all right. And But they would also say it's up to the people. And if the people want to keep electing the same guy, who are we to say no? You can't do this guy, can't elect this individual because they've already served so many terms in office. But doesn't that, I mean, I'm not arguing with you, but that, doesn't that kind of, um, in it, it validates the point that Dr. Bolt's making about these guys being theorists or philosophers. In theory and philosophically, yeah, I mean, the public should hold these people accountable every two sure. or six years. But but pragmatically, we understand now that if you get on the inside, 
you're a lot harder to beat than not oh, being sure. on the inside. I mean, Blake Masters is finding this out in Arizona. Um, right. You know, a lot of other, I mean, challenging incumbents is incredibly difficult was in it, any form of government. Was it 90% return yeah. rate in the House, 80, 80% in the Senate. It's just an incredible just name so, recognition. So, so even the theorists and philosophers provided all that data and information you think would defer to the voters. I think so. I, this, they're, they're products of their time. And so, right, maybe you put them today, they may say, well, maybe not. But again, coming out of the American Revolution, and they were all in. This was a bold, a radical experiment. They trusted the people. It's an incredible legacy that we have bequeathed to them. And I'm, I'm lucky I get to talk about it and teach about it every day. It's good. And, and we appreciate you being here. Can you hang around one sure. more segment? Yeah. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. See, normally you got to borrow money, go into debt to get some of this education. We do it free of charge every Tuesday morning. But to be careful here, somebody will try to figure out a way to charge for a, not an online course, but a um, an on-the-air course. Dr. Will Bolt, history chair, Francis Marion University, is with us. We're talking a little about the um, the founders in contrast to the, the, the king. I mean, Queen Elizabeth passed away, 70-year run. Um, the King of England at the time of the Constitution or the forming of the American government, I mean, he was late in life. How old was he? I mean, he was in his 60s or 70s. He came to the throne in 1760 during the French Indian War, but already there were there were rumors, which then turned out to be true, that he didn't have all his marbles. He was There was something, and eventually he would spend the last years of his reign basically insane, and there's no, there's no mechanism to get rid of a king who it's is, an hereditary monarchy. So, and some would say that some of the colonists kind of sense this, and this is why you had an escape impeachment in the Constitution. If something were to happen to a president, there's at least there's an exit strategy. So, did anybody? I mean, you're, you're an American history expert. This would be uh, British history, but but okay, let's say this. Let, let's ask it like this. Wonder if anybody who advised the king or the parliament suggest to not respond as aggressively to the olive branch tell us what the olive sure. branch petition is i know you know this but- was just another one last attempt by the colonists to try and say hey we, we want to be a part of the empire again we've been arguing for a few years just just give us what we want and then by this point uh, the rubicon had just been crossed lots of individuals lots of americans were saying let's declare independence let's get out but probably Maybe half of the country wasn't weren't yet ready, even after Lexington and Concord weren't ready for independence. And this was the kind of way for the your fiery patriots, your Sam Adams, your John Ann, your Patrick Henrys to say, the English don't care about us anymore. They're they're not gonna listen to us. Send this and we know they're gonna reject it, and then you've got nothing left. We've tried it your way, then you gotta come around to ours. Okay, let's go to that last point you raised. How many Americans well I mean, we weren't Americans at the time, how many yeah. original colonists? We're still supportive of the king, even after the actions of our founders. Well, the, the irony is that support originally at first for the revolution was weakest in the South. And the Southern economy... That, that embarrasses me. Uh, there was, well, there, but again, this is why George Washington is chosen as commander of the continent. He's from the South, right? He's also a wealthy individual, moderate on all the issues. Somebody who, in 1775, everybody knew you could trust with power. He's not going to take the army and start some social revolution. And, of course, it, when the war is over, Washington goes back to his farm. Thomas Jefferson from Virginia is tasked with writing the Declaration of Independence. And so your southern planters, your southern farmers who are making money, again, there was a tobacco boom, realized, don't bite the hand that feeds us. If we, if we 
go to war against the British. Now the British Navy, which has been protecting us for so many years, now becomes our enemy. So it took a lot of kind of hand-wringing and blunders by the British to bring the South around uh, to the Patriot cause. Okay, let's wander off into the real controversial. I got to believe, I mean, I'm not there, but I've read and, and understand, and I, you think, I mean, you know where I'm headed here. So the Southerners were resistant to the formation of a new government that was built upon personal liberties and freedoms. Let, let's be very honest and candid. The Southern economy was predicated on what? Farming. Of course, right. Which, which required what? Which slave, labor. slave labor. I mean, there's no doubt about it. So how, how much willingness were Southerners to admit their concern of this new iteration of government that may or may not be as profitable or prosperous for their for the current model maintained with a king in charge. Well, sure. And in the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson lists all of these grievances. Jefferson's it's a draft, and then his draft is modified. Jefferson included a section he blamed King George the Third for installing slavery. In Virginia, How did he rationalize that, Dr. Bolt? Well, this is Jefferson's way of kind of saying, hey, we're saying all men are created equal here, but yet there's this great hypocrisy. So this is Jefferson kind of like punches Paul. He's washing his hands. It's not my fault, right? Yeah, we've got these individuals doing the labor on our farms, but you guys started this, so we're just kind of, this was the hand we've been dealt. And a lot of other delegates said this is too explosive of an issue right now. Let's not deal with this right now so let's kick the can down the road and so this this section was deleted but is it fair to say the reason the southerners were less inclined to be supportive of the formation of a new nation is slave labor and the agrarian economy oh for sure but again it's this which also brings a lot of them around because once the revolution starts in virginia the chief british official lord dunmore issues a proclamation and he promises freedom to every slave and so every Southerner is like, well, now you're trying to, you're threatening our property. So a lot of the Southerners who are, all right, I want to remain loyal to the king. I'm not yet for a, ready for a break. Now you're threatening to take my property. You're threatening servile insurrection. You're closing off all ports. You're hiring German mercenaries to come over and do your fighting. Yeah, these guys in New England, suddenly their, their positions are right. It's probably time to make a break. When you declare war... On a, I mean, when one country declares war on another, you have a revolutionary war. Out of that comes a winner and a loser, and America's formed. And we have a, a constitution, the Bill of Rights, and a, a Declaration of Independence all that began stuff, it all. Oh, yeah. Okay. When, and, and we basically, I mean, I, I would imagine a severing of tires is required. It's not <laughs> like, hey, we're going to war with you, but let's still get together every now and then and talk about <laughs> some of these disagreements we have. I mean, it was an all-out war, one yeah. against the other. When did we, and what president was responsible for reestablishing diplomatic relations with our mother country we established relations right away under washington I mean, there, there's a there's a surrender there's a yep. treaty that there's an arrangement made we'll walk us through that if you don't mind well, the british agree the treaty of paris 1783 and the british recognize american independence they didn't live up to a lot of the terms of the treaty they were supposed to vacate a lot of their forts in the ohio valley pennsylvania western new york state they stayed there. They traded with Native Americans, provided them with guns and weapons, which hindered American settlement. And we protested this vigorously. But again, right after we have our Constitution, we send American officials over to over to England, and King George III grudgingly uh, accepts them. He 
walks them into the room, and then famously turns his back on them. And so it was always kind of a difficult relationship. We fight another war, the War of 1812. Uh, we almost fought a war over Oregon during the American Civil War. Uh, we came, almost came to blows. And Secretary of State William Seward was ready to fight. Abraham Lincoln said to him, one war at a time. And it's only finally at the end of the 19th century, once Germany begins to rise as a global power, that we kind of forge an alliance with the British. And of course, we fought on the same side in World War I. And ever since then, they've been our biggest ally. So at what point, you, you got to believe that, I mean, if America had political thinkers, I mean, we're not America at the time, but if Jefferson, <laughs> Adams, and Madison are philosophizing and theorizing about self-governance, and it's really based on a lot of the uh, the John Locke writings and, you know, so some of the Hobbes-Locke debate of the the, the the Enlightenment era. I mean, if you look at our founders, most were heavily influenced by the era of Enlightenment, oh, the sure. age of Absolutely. Enlightenment, no question about it, that human dignity and... Uh, individual liberties and freedoms were the, the the unalienable rights you know guaranteed <laughs> by god but w- wonder if anybody close to the king or in british parliament felt that this would this would be a fatal mistake eventually they'll understand and they'll come sure. to grips with common men can't govern <laughs> common men well this is right the belief of many in great britain uh, once the revolution of course is going on things start to go bad the british said all right let's start let's just hold on to the south this is where the money is. We'll keep the Carolinas, Virginia, New England. Eventually, they'll come to their senses. They'll come back. Even after the revolution, once we were victorious, there was still this thought. These, these, these Americans, they don't know what they're doing. They'll be on their hands and knees in a few years. They'll come crawling back to us, begging us to take them back, and they'll want to be a part of the empire. They're not going to be able to defend themselves. The French, the Spanish, somebody else is going to come after them. So they'll, they'll be back. And, of course, we made it work. We never had to. How important were the French in allowing us to legitimize ourselves as a new nation? Sure. Again, the French, of course, come in uh, after the Battle of Saratoga. We sign a treaty in 1778. Once France gets involved, it becomes a world war. And, of course, the Frenchies, they got 50 words for surrender, not one for shower. But in this instance, they were at least a, a military power. They had a navy. And so this now meant that every other British colonial possession in the empire was threatened. So the British even had to take troops from North America, put it back in London, because there was the fear that the French might invade Lower England. So this certainly depletes British resources, and eventually French troops come here to the United States. And again, one of those great moments in American history where we say, maybe God Almighty was watching out for us. Washington wants the French, come to New York City. I want to liberate New York City. And the Frenchies say, no, 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 we're going to land our troops at Yorktown. And the Frenchies, of course, had no idea this is where the British were retreating after they had enough of General Francis Marion in the south. And of all the ports that the Frenchies could have picked, they picked the one Yorktown where the British are trying to retreat to. And Washington realizes the French Navy's there. They can't get out by the sea. So he races the army down and traps them on land. And so, again, the French, they could have picked Wilmington, Baltimore, Philadelphia, any other port. But again, of all the ports, they picked the right one. That is so interesting to me. Last question, and I'll let you get out of here. Oh, sure. Thank you for your time. Dr. Will Bolt, History Chair, Francis Marion University, uh, is with us and not getting paid to, to give this <laughs> history lecture. Um, I'm asking leading questions. I mean, there are a couple of things that I'm, I mean, I've studied a lot of this and aggravate Bolt about some of these, uh, so some of these American stories or hi- historical accountings. Um, you're an expert in early American history. What would the most prominent figures in early American history think about a female 
becoming queen and staying queen for 70 subsequent years. Yeah, I mean, they, nobody knows the answer to this, sure. but 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 you've you've studied enough about these people that were so instrumental in our nation's founding. What what do you think they'd say over a beer <laughs> about Queen Elizabeth's seventy year reign? Well, you got two guys probably on opposite ends of the spectrum, and again Jefferson at one time. There's a lot of contradictions with Jefferson, but Jefferson believed right. If if you're electing that person and they keep winning, then that's fine. You know, kind of serving as a lifelong monarch, who knows. But Jefferson also believed in the idea of, and even more so Andrew Jackson, the idea of rotation in office, all right, that you shouldn't hold on to these offices in perpetuity. You need fresh blood. And so, again, this is when Jackson came into office, all these office holders who'd been there for 20, 30 years, uh, Jackson said, get out. All right, you're, you're old. Let's get some new ideas, some fresh blood in there, and especially I'm going to fire you if you didn't vote for me. So there you go. That's kind of interesting. Very well explained. Thank you, Dr. Bolt. Hey, good stuff. Appreciate thank you for time. the history lesson today. Well, I mean, no you, charge. I mean, you, you know more know that, oh, than I you did. It. I mean, yeah. I, I've read a lot about this, but he, I mean, it's his job. It's his livelihood, and he has to be accurate. I don't. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's the biggest difference. If I make a mistake, I say, well, I'm a dumb. I mean, I, I'm stupid. I mean, what, what do you expect out of me? He's a, he's a decorated um, member of academia, so he's a, his threshold is much more uh, pristine and prestigious than mine is if i get it wrong i'll just say well i didn't say that rev comes to me one day a few years back and says hey i've got this idea the new owners want to archive the show uh what do you, what do you mean archive <laughs> what, 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 explain that to me archive let me let me google that real yeah, quick i think i know copy. what it means but let me make sure he says they want to memorialize it I was like, well, <laughs> they want to tape it <laughs> they want to record it he said yeah i said well, why don't you say that i mean why do you got to say archive or memorialize uh, they, they want to tape it. That means I'm <laughs> held accountable for everything I've ever said. And if I say it and it's out of the ether somewhere and there is no evidence, a little bit like you the could, BYU Duke yeah, story, you, you know, you I didn't deny. say it. Yeah. Uh, can you believe what Ken said on the radio this morning? I didn't say it. <laughs> you may have thought you heard that, yeah. but I didn't say it. But the next thing you know, you you we've got all me. fancy schmancy. We record things. Now, excuse me. We don't record anything. We, we memorialize we and archive, archive certain things. Uh, for public edification, and I've had to clean it up a bit. <laughs> I've had to be. I mean, I've been tempted to say a few things just to provoke. I can't say that because that's just <laughs> that's way out there. Bolt can't do that, and when he comes in here, he brings a reputation with him. And uh, and I really and truly can hope you do enjoy as well his um his very accurate depiction of early yeah and we, and we want him history. to leave here with his reputation history. intact well i mean as the best we can yeah I th- we, we dirty him up a little uh, bit a little bit just being here just but just remember just remember dr bolt that what you say here is archived and <laughs> yeah. memorialized which in simple pamplicoinian means they take this they stuff do. yeah they, they record <laughs> now, now you tell me <laughs> <laughs> they record this stuff take a break thank you Thanks, sir. guys take Have a break day. back in just a minute yeah, because it's archived and memorialized, taped and recorded, yeah. right? That's right. Yeah. I remember when we time. did that. I was not crazy about that. Still not real crazy about it. But because there are certain things I say a certain way that I really don't want to own. I really don't want to take responsibility uh, for what I say. It's not what I say I don't believe in, but, but there are times I say it in a way that could be confusing, misinterpreted. <laughs> got to be careful with sarcasm. I mean, you got to be real, real careful with sarcasm i've texted people before and actually read my text back and that could have been the most insulting thing imaginable 
but but I know what I meant. I mean, I know what I meant it to sound like and what I'm what my intent was. But the spoken word is powerful, and you've got to be very careful in incorporating a high degree of sarcasm in the spoken word. You know it's sarcastic. Some people know it's sarcastic, but others, no. Nah, I mean, that's that's just totally improper. Yeah. And out of and sometimes through texting, the context does not uh, well, I mean, there, travel there's no, there, there's as no cadence nor inflection exactly. of your voice. I mean, I mean, you've texted with me long enough to know that, that I, I say the most insulting things, but they're sarcastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not an insulting dude. I'm not mean and angry and mad at anybody about much of anything, but I tend to be blunt and sarcastic. And if you're blunt and sarcastic and say certain things or text certain things a certain way, they can be perceived. I mean, you, you come across very... Um, you know, I, I don't much care for him or, or his opinions or, or political thought. So I'm interested, after our history lesson this morning with Dr. Bolt, I really enjoyed that, um, talking about the relationship and the roles of Washington, Jefferson, Adams. Uh, what's interesting to me, it, it seems like just almost the perfect mix of personalities, intelligence, strength in certain areas, leadership qualities uh, amongst that those groups that group of people. Okay, when you look at the Am prominent I right? well I mean yeah, you're exactly right. And when you look at the prominent figures in American history, th- there are a lot of people who like thinking about things and talking about things and writing about things, but they're not real crazy about doing those things. H- here's a real quick analogy. I've never seen a picture of Jefferson Adams or Madison or Hamilton with a sword. I've never seen one of Washington without. Washington was understood by many of the political theorists and and philosophers as not a theorist, not a philosopher, but he fought his ass off. I mean, he led troops into battle. We had a pretty day at the State House one year when I was lieutenant governor, and we had a break. And, you know, I didn't have anything to do, so I'm walking around the grounds. And there's a statue here, the statue there. And it dawned on me how many people of political prominence and influence had swords by their side. So when you look at the pillars and foundations of our democracy, republicanism, um, there's Washington with a sword and not a book. There's Jefferson with a book and not a sword. There's Madison with a book, not a sword. Adams and Frank. I mean, I'm not saying those guys weren't courageous. I mean, they were willing to be charged with treason, execution by public hanging. Didn't matter if they had a sword or not. So, so the political thinker was instrumental and vitally important in founding a new nation and creating a system of government. But but Washington, I mean, he spilled blood. I mean, he fought the good fight. He didn't write the book. He didn't read the essay. He didn't, you know, I mean, the, the era of enlightenment, the age of enlightenment was probably the biggest influencer in, in all of our political theories that we were founded upon. Um, I don't know how much Washington was interested in that. I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I don't think Jefferson, Adams, Madison, Franklin, thought Washington was dumb. I mean, I, by, by far. I mean, I think they had great respect for him. But I've always wondered what when they got together and Washington has blood on his arm and a sword by his side, if they were not somewhat envious of how much he had given in the name. Uh, once again, the spoken word is powerful. We just talked about that. The written word is unbelievably un- instrumental in our nation's founding. I mean, you know, Jefferson and Adams, I would argue, thought more about our nation's existence than we still live in a world. I mean, you and I wake up every day in a nation that has Jefferson and Adams fingerprints all over it. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Um, And Washington probably doesn't give the credit or get the credit he deserves 
in being as instrumental as he was in the founding of our nation because the war was fought and won. And after that, once again, he surrendered his sword. Jefferson's writings live on. Madison's writings, I mean, the Federalist Paper, and, you know, I mean, all of these are instrumental in how we perceive government to be, what what we think we're about. Um, it, it's hard to pay Washington the proper respect. Does that make sense? Can, can, you, can you say it like this, that his sword kind of was the backup to the writings? No, no question about it. I mean, well, I mean, you know, the written word. Or made or, the writing possible. You, do you think we could have um, talked or uh, you think we could have argued the British Empire into surrender? <laughs> I mean, do you think Jefferson and Adams and Madison could have sat down with a with, with a team of uh, members of Parliament and said, you know, here's why we should have our independence? No, it was going to take a hard man. It was going to take a, a courageous man. It was going to take someone willing to stick a sword in someone. And Jefferson, sh- I mean, excuse me, Washington showed that ability and, and that courage. I'm not saying Jefferson, Adams, Madison, Franklin, Hamilton would not have, but but sometimes I wonder if people like me, who, who like to read about what we, who we are, what we're about, where we come from, why did we do this, why didn't we do that? I think this, I mean, I'll, I'll be level. You know, I know it's archived and memorialized. I don't think I respect Washington enough. I probably give too much credit to, to that group who wrote things into reality, who spoke things into reality, who thought things into reality, and, and not as much to someone who, you know, as he said, I mean, his, his eyesight was going bad, um, he surrendered his sword. Uh, he's an American hero beyond reproach. Um, even better than Mueller or some of these special counsel investigators. Oh. Remember when oh, they, yeah. when they appoint one of these special prosecutors, they'll always say he's beyond reproach. Mm-hmm. I'm the man's of great integrity and oh, courage yeah. and always doing the right thing. It's hard to find a place where Washington did the wrong thing. It's pretty easy to find conflicting and contradictory moments in Jefferson and Franklin and Adams. I mean, they were elitist. They were intellects. I mean, they were complicated men. They were bright men, but they were deeply conflicted. And and I think they were more than happy for Washington to go out and lead this army because they didn't have to. But But I've always wondered when Adams and Jefferson took their last breath or, or realized they were at the end of life, how much Maybe, maybe between their ears, how much accounting they did and respect they had for George Washington's courage. I mean, I've always wondered mm. that. Take a break. Back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. When you're down south in September and you hear drier and cooler or drier and comfortable, that's kind of a um. That that means that fall is just around the bend. And, um, and and more pleasant, less humid weather will be um, in vogue more than not. I'll be in um, Columbia this Saturday for the Georgia football game, and it's a high noon kickoff. Mm-hmm. So I am with bated breath anticipating what the weather is going to be like, and I think we're going to get a pretty pleasant day for football. Oh, highs good. in the low, low 80s, uh, humidity not quite as high. This time of the year, let me tell you what to look for, dew points. If the dew point is less than 65, you're going to have a pleasant day. If the dew point exceeds 65, you're going to have a lot of humidity and more unpleasant circumstances. We're just kind of at a weird period of time, the South. Um, we're, we're trying to get the humidity out of our weather system, but we have to – I mean, it kicks and screams as it's made. I mean, when it, temperature equals dew point, that's when you get fog, right? Yeah, there, there you go. But, I mean, the dew point above 65 down South is humid 
the dew point below 65 down south. And uh, and once again, uh, I've got air conditioner. I'm good inside. But that football game, and, and come September, October, November, a lot of our worlds revolve around Gamecocks, Tigers, Bulldogs, you know, Gators, Volunteers, Rebels, Crimson Tide. Did I leave anybody out? Yeah, Tigers. Well, I mean, I said Tigers. Shauna Clears, you're right. Coastal Carolina deserves some credit. Hey, um, something that caught my attention this morning was Joe Biden and President Biden's cancer moonshots. Uh, the reason it caught my attention is roughly 600,000 people die annually from cancer. Um, it scares the bejesus out of anybody when they hear that diagnosis. It's not as terminal. We've made some progress in treating certain kinds of cancer, but President Biden wants a government initiative in response to the 600,000 people a year who die uh, from cancer. Fox News Radio's Jared Halperin is in our nation's capital to, I hope, explain this President Biden cancer moonshot. Jared, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Yeah, this was um, this is something that the president has talked about previous. He has talked about how trying to shepherd the full resources of the federal government uh, to to better research uh, cancer uh, was one of the reasons he, he ran for president. Obviously, you point out the number of Americans that this affects. President Biden is one of them in 2015, losing his oldest son, Beau, to brain cancer. So he has spent a lot of time both in office, out of office, thinking about these issues. Yesterday, he went to the uh, Kennedy Library in Boston. Why did he go there and why did he go yesterday? Because yesterday was the 60th anniversary of President Kennedy uh, giving his famous moonshot speech in 1962. He said that by the end of this decade, uh, we will land a man on the moon. Uh, people thought it was pretty unlikely at the time. Um, and he, he sort of set that as the goal. And it was met in uh, July 1969, obviously. Um, the the uh, Americans were the first to, to land um, a man and a spacecraft on the moon. So uh, that is why the president sort of is framing it in this context, that it's that type of moment, he says, for this country to bring all of the resources of the private and, and public sector together, um, unite the country around this goal of uh, reducing uh, the number of cancer that's in this country by 50 percent uh, over the next 25 years. Uh, a big part of that isn't so much the funding. A lot of that's already been done. A lot of this is already in the works. Congress has allocated uh, billions and billions of dollars in, in cancer research funding. What the president is doing is creating a new agency called ARPA-H. It's kind of modeled after DARPA, which is a defense research um, agency that's credited with like creating the internet, things like inventing the internet, things like that. Um, this would be a, a sort of catch-all, a sort of central agency uh, that would be responsible uh, for directing these federal dollars and for ensuring that research being done is being disseminated to everybody. In other words, researchers aren't kind of keeping their findings close to the vest. They want other researchers who may be working in the same field to have access to the exact same information. Jared, a question I have, maybe you've got the answer. I mean, as a libertarian-leaning Republican, I'm always concerned when the public sector meddles in the affairs of the private sector. I understand some of the biotechnology, biomanufacturing, some of the initiative involving that. But I read, I think, yesterday where there's an accompanying executive order that calls on federal agencies including the Department of Agriculture, the Department of Homeland Security, to focus on this effort. I guess the question is, what in the world does the Department of Agriculture and Homeland Security have to do with cancer, with, with, with eventually curing cancer? 
Well, remember that the Department of Agriculture does a lot of nutrition. Uh, a lot of the nutrition agencies fall under that umbrella, right? So that's going to be part of this: is what sort of um, what, what sort of um, uh, you know nutrition studies are being done, right? And is that getting to the to the right people? The Department of Homeland Security, as we've seen over the last couple of years, plays a role in um, uh, rolling out uh, you know, sort of vaccine. Uh, initiatives and things like that, which is one of the the parts of this that is being looked at. Believe it or not, there is research underway uh, for a cancer vaccine, a a type of of vaccine that that people could take that would make them less likely um, to have genes mutate into cancerous cells. Um, It sounds remarkable, (laughs) but it's something that the president talked about in his speech yesterday. And having the full resources of the government then to not only get that research out, but then if it is promising to then, you know, turn that into a a more widespread study uh, to get the materials out would be something that, that the government would play a role in. Very well explained. Jared, thank you for your time. Have a great day. Sure thing. You know, it's kind of interesting. And the reason I, um, Freehold, when you gave me this sheet this morning is at my workstation and I saw this cancer moonshot, I read a little bit yesterday in a Yahoo article, and I think maybe a Wall Street Journal article, it's another government program that will pick winners and losers. I mean, the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Agriculture, um, the Biden administration, the executive branch of the federal government will decide which new biotechnology and biomanufacturing companies are on the right track. How, how will that not be influenced by political favoritism? I mean, obviously. Whether or not they are actually the ones sure, that are on the right I mean, track. That's where we're headed. Do, do you or do you not trust the biotechnology and biomedical industry, biomanufacturing and medical industry to cure cancer or not? I mean, do we, do we believe that the federal government is going to increase the likelihood and speed of which we get to a vaccine? I mean, let's hypothetically argue that. Doing a lot of that this morning. Hypotheticals. So, so hypothetically, let's say that there's some scientist of enormous brilliance working in a lab somewhere in a research university for a cancer vaccine. I mean, that sounds odd to me because there's so many different strains of cancer, so many different, here I go with another, mutations of cancer, pancreatic cancer and blood cancer and brain cancer and bone cancer. I'm not going to begin to try to explain the difference because I don't have a clue. I don't have any idea what the difference is in those sorts of cancers. Obviously, they attack different parts of the body. Um, Why? No idea. Can't begin to fathom. Um, I trust, and I got, got kind of a simple explanation when it comes to that sort of thing. Thank God for really smart people. I mean, thank God for really smart, dedicated people who are pursuing critical cures to make our lives better, uh, whether they're working for the government or not. But, but how do we believe, and this is the mindset of a liberal, a liberal believes that the private sector needs nudging by the public sector, uh, the enormous amounts of funding. Well, all that is is more borrowed money. I mean, the government's running at about a $1 trillion a year deficit, so they don't really have extra money laying around to spend on cancer research. They're they're printing money, and I'm afraid they're going to use the Department of Agriculture, they're going to use the Department of Homeland Security, and they're going to use the executive branch of the federal government to say, okay, biology tech, excuse me, biotech company one, um, we know that you are a big contributor to Donald Trump, therefore you're on the bad list. Yeah, but we've got this cutting-edge technology, don't care. You want this money, you better square up. You better straighten up. You better get on the good team. I mean, it's obvious that's what's going to happen. 
So the biotech grants, the biomanufacturing grants as a part of this initiative are going to be determined by who? People with political interest, right? I mean, who in Washington doesn't have a political interest? I like to hear these, I'm nonpartisan. You don't live in Washington then. You can't live inside the Beltway and be a nonpartisan. You just can't. You're one or you're either a Republican or you're a Democrat, and we know the percentages. I mean, look at the voting tallies in some of the collar counties around our nation's capital. I mean, it's overwhelming that the nation's capital voted 96 to 4 percent in support of Joe Biden. I mean, it's going to be Democrat-led companies. It's going to be companies that are going to be heavily influenced. Whether Let's hypothetically say you run a biomanufacturing company, and you're a pretty conservative Republican. But to be a part of this process, you've got to depend on a Democrat administration and a, de- de- a Democrat department head to advance a grant or not. So there's a $10 million biomanufacturing grant out there somewhere, and you're a conservative Republican. You gave Trump money. You gave the Senate, the Republican senator, in whatever state you're operating your business in. I mean, do you really believe that you're going to get fairly treated despite what your cutting-edge technology may be? Leave the private sector alone. If you really want to cure cancer, if you want less than 600,000 people a year dying from cancer, take government out of the equation. Government will do nothing but muddle the process. It always happens, guys. It gets more expensive and less effective. Everything the government touches does that. we're, We're less likely to get a cure. We're more likely to waste money by this initiative. And to go to the Kennedy Library and, and, and set some sort of ambitious goal. I mean, it was, nobody had ever been on the moon before. That's pretty ambitious. But today we've got a space vessel sitting in, what, lockdown. We've got two attempted launches scrubbed. Why? Because we can't get it right. I mean, we just can't get it right. Now, I saw a couple of weeks ago before the first launch was scrubbed that we had a lesbian astronaut. We had a transgender engineer. You know, we've got more minorities and we got more this and more. We got the most diverse go to the moon team we've ever had in human history. We ain't left the damn pad yet. Now, we've got the quotas checked. We've got transgenders and we've got minorities and we've got, you know, um, gays and lesbians. I mean, we've got, I mean, it's the Rainbow Coalition without question. The spacecraft is still sitting exactly where it was. Because of two scrubbed launches. And when we start investing government dollars in biotechnology and biomanufacturing, and we call it a government initiative, it's going to be less effective and more expensive. You can archive, memorialize, tape, and record that because I believe it with every fiber of my being. Let's go to the phone. Here's David in the PD. Morning, David. Hey, good to see that Jersey Mike is back in the studio there, uh, Ken. Yes, sir. Back with us this morning. Uh, think about uh, you talking about monarchs. Uh, let's have the combination of Lyndon Johnson and Jimmy Carter, and that would be Linda Carter. So let's have a queen, uh, Linda Carter, so everybody could tell the truth. But on a serious note, I'm a big fan of JD Vance. Uh, what does JD stand for? Don't have any idea. 
Well, I think if you look at the uh, Internet, it's got two different things, but James David, isn't that great? Two names. I mean, maybe somebody should just be a candidate and call himself James David. And you guys were bringing up uh, my favorite Eagles song is Those Shoes. And I'd ask you this, Ken, what kind of shoes did you wear in high school football? It might have been Redale. I don't remember. Uh, Redale or I, see that's 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 my whole point. I think we we wore pony, but they're getting down to the, the, the root level with these logos and this and that with these kids. Uh they getting them addicted to stuff as far as these shoes and I don't know. That 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 just gets me. Um so I just leave it that, man. But they're getting at the root level with this logo, with this uh, this mindset that you have to wear Nike or you have to wear um, Under Armour or Adidas or whatever. Leave it that. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. 843 Yeah, I mean, I kind of went on a rant this morning about Under Armour um, shoes. I believe, um, I believe there's a... I think there's an invest. Well, I mean, let, let me say this again. I, it's unfair for me to say I think there's an issue with the shoe, right? I mean, I don't have anything to base that on at all. I think an investigation is warranted with all the lower extremity injuries in South Carolina and them being one of the few schools that wear Under Armour cleats. That would be the first place I'd look. If I were director of competition for football at the University of South Carolina, I would get in a car or a plane and I would fly to Under Armour with somebody on my team kind of kind of an engineer and a medical specialist and and I let's pursue an answer here. We're having a lot more lower extremity injuries than we ever have before since we started wearing the Under Armour shoes and and Rev can validate this. I mean, I kind of been on this. I mean, I've not said it publicly, but but I, you know, for 4 or 5 years behind the scenes, I've kind of said, "Man, the, the, the Under Armour's not a a shoe company." Mm-hmm. I mean, they've not been around that. a long time. They realized when they came up with this dry fit technology, and it took off. I mean, they, and I think they make wonderful, wonderful, you know, sweat wicking material. I think their apparel is world class. But they they weren't a shoe company. They became a shoe company because they realized that's the profit center. That's where you make the most money is designing a shoe that Steph Curry wears, or LeBron James wears, or you know, uh, Tom Brady wears, and. Uh, you kind of mass market that, and kids want it, and young people want it, and there are big margins in that because you get made them China at a sweatshop. You know, some twelve-year-old makes you know uh, making a dollar a day or a dollar a week, whatever the number is, whatever the communist government decides to pay. You know, that's, that's kind of what they make, and uh, out of that comes a hundred and fifty-dollar pair of basketball sneakers. What well, well, the cleats are similar to that, as far as I'm concerned. The caller that made the most sense this morning, we had a surgeon, an orthopedic surgeon, call in. And said, absolutely. I mean, the, the cleat can have a great effect or impact on leg injuries or, or any sort of athletic injury. But but then the uh, the person that had been in the shoe industry for years and years and years said, it's all about quality control. You know, the design of the shoe is one thing. Is the shoe being built to specs? I mean, is, is the right kind of rubber being put in? I got a buddy of mine in the food business, got in big trouble. I mean, he farmed out his product and they were supposed to be all natural ingredients. He gets a letter from the USDA saying, hey, man, your product is misrepresenting what's in it. He said, no, it's not. I signed a contract with a with kind of another company to, to pack my product, but they weren't doing what they said they were doing. You know, it was it was on a land far, far away. And um, 
the, the quality control chain had broken down. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, does Under Armour design a bad shoe? I don't know. Do they have quality control in some of these plants that manu- or the manufacturing facilities that, that build the shoe? I don't know. But I, 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 th- those are places I would begin significantly looking. Take a break. Back in just a minute. So the White House has appointed biomedical executive Dr. Renee Wedgren, W-E-G-R-Z-Y-N, to lead the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health. This is a new agency created by Biden earlier this year, ready to push the limits of U.S. biomedical and health research and innovation. Um, she'll be the agency's first leader. Um, I have no idea if she's a lesbian or a transgender, <laughs> but um, there's a good chance she is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm not being facetious. I'm not trying to be um, a little bit, I, I guess I am trying to be controversial, but I mean, I, all I read about this new NASA team was its diversity. Right. I mean, that's all I read about. This is the, the most diverse. Yeah. Other than completing the task. Th- at hand. Th- this is the most diverse team that we've ever seen at NASA, and we should all be proud that we've included every ethnic group, every socioeconomic group, every. Re- it's just bizarre to me that we don't look at the merits. I mean, this bridge may or may not hold up, but it was built by a bunch of transgenders. I mean, that doesn't make you feel better. I mean, I know you're wet in the ocean drowning, but at least you drowned on a bridge built by a team of of transgenders. I mean, you know, it's not about engineering. It's about diversity. It's not about, you know, um, getting to the moon. It's about how diverse are we in trying to get to the moon. I mean, the, the absurdity of this, and it's not Dale Earnhardt Incorporated, th- this diversity um equity and inclusion is about like esg i mean it's dangerous it's extremely dangerous and then you can rest assured that if we're going to if a woman named dr renee uh wedsgren is going to lead the advanced research projects agency there will be an attempt to make it diverse there will be an attempt to make it inclusive they will not look for the best biotech experts or biomanufacturing experts they will you know Try, try to galvanize America into believing more important than, you know, curing cancer is how do we cure cancer? We don't want a bunch of straight white men curing cancer, do we? I mean, if we're going to the moon, we don't want to go to the moon with a bunch of straight white guys. How boring would that be? I mean, they've done it before. Let's find some other sorts of people, some other kinds of people. I don't care if every bridge is designed by a straight white man as long as it does what it's supposed to do. Get me from one side of the river to the other. I could care less if the the next launch of an aircraft. Well, wonder if Elon Musk says, "Hey, you want to be on the SpaceX team?" Yes, I do. Um, let me see your credentials. Well, I graduated first in my class at MIT. Uh, I've got a doctorate in engineering from Purdue. Uh, I've took advanced classes at Stanford. I mean, I am academically elitist. I mean, I have done everything academically. I am um, a, a mathematical savant. I mean, I, I just, I, I enjoy crunching numbers. I know how to build and design things. Uh, I'm easy to work with. Uh, but you're gay, straight, and white. Not sure we got a place for you here. So you got a transgender who did okay in math, okay in college, okay in engineering school. But they're the kind of person that this, you know, this world kind of embraces. And it's absurd. I mean, it's absurd. What if Dawn Staley were a straight white man? You know what she'd be looking for a job. 
I can assure you of that. If Don Staley were a straight white man and had canceled a basketball game in the name of a flagship university because she heard something and it was proven to be wrong, she, excuse me, he, the gay straight, straight man, would be fired and he should be. I mean, he should be fired just as she should be fired. And, um, you know, when the university will have, here's probably their strategy. You ready? They're probably going to hunker down and just wait it out. I mean, that's shameful. That's embarrassing. We deserve better than that. But if you're in their shoes, in all honesty, I mean, you're not in your head. I mean, that strategy may be the best strategy. We build a world that does not want to hear the truth. It just doesn't. I mean, the truth may hurt your feelings at times. You made an accusation. You found out the accusation was wrong, but you're doubling down because it fits what you want to happen, what you wish had happened. There's nothing the media and Dawn Staley would rather do than prove BYU, a majority white Mormon school, is, 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 is centered on racism. There's nothing she would rather do than that. That's a little bit of the tragedy here. We should be happy that it didn't happen. I mean, we as Americans, we as God-fearing, red-blooded Americans, non-God-fearing, red-blooded Americans, we should be excited that it was found to be inaccurate. An investigation proved that it didn't happen. But the press is miserable. I mean, Stephen A. Smith at ESPN even said, I I wrote this down this morning. Um, First of all, he said that... um, well, this is here. I want to see what he said to begin with, because it's, it's kind of interesting. Stephen A. Smith. Uh, anyway, let's let's go back to the time. No, here's Stephen A. Smith. Um, they took a half step in the right direction. Um, he acknowledged that racism and prejudice still exist in this country, but we're not doing ourselves any favors if we bring it up and broach it when it doesn't exist. That's the key we need to focus on. But he qualified his comments by saying, I'll be damned if I'm not going to give her the benefit of the doubt. What do you mean by that? I'll be damned if I'm not going to give her the benefit of the doubt. So in other words, if she's a black person but lies, she gets the benefit of the doubt. If you're a straight white male, how much benefit of the doubt do you believe uh, we would get? Now, now the Times actually did this. It's kind of interesting because the Times would be more... Uh, media savvy. I mean, Stephen A. Smith, you know who he is, the guy that yells on ESPN, mm-hmm. uh, makes it almost impossible to listen to watch. I mean, I don't want a white guy yelling at me. You know what I mean? I don't want a white guy just yelling and screaming. Um, and again, he, he, I mean, he takes a lot of, he has a lot of trust in his opinion. You know what I mean? He thinks a lot of himself and what he has to say. And the, the university that watches ESPN to some degree probably do as well. Um, but, but after the times, after USA Today, we, we stopped and had a break uh, a minute ago, and I thought we were good on time. But this was interesting to me. Mike Freeman, he's a columnist and USA Today's, you ready, Rev? Face and inequality editor. Excuse me, race and inequality editor. Got to get these reading glasses. Why would, I, why would it be face? I mean, why would I even make that mistake? How stupid is that? Um, USA Today's race and inequality editor for sports. So USA Today has somebody on their payroll. If somebody says, hey, what does your dad do? My dad is the race and inequality editor for USA Today Sports. I mean, that kind of lets you know exactly where they're, where they're headed. In the BYU Duke, here's what Freeman said. In the BYU Duke volleyball story, a racist, a plethora of failures, and a hero. 
uh, it kind of led with the assertion that what's certain about one of the uglier stories in a sea of recent ugly stories is so many people failed a black young woman named Rachel Richardson. Here we go with Stephen A. Smith. You ready? Here's his original comment. Um, denouncing BYU for its dereliction of duty, he blasted the university for not addressing it with a level of quickness and speed that you should have addressed this with. Now, they're, they're, they're both wrong. Now, now the BYU investigation um, has been completed. It is be, I mean, it really and truly gets more clear today than it was yesterday that there is no evidence. I mean, let's hypothetically say there was little evidence to support Ms. Richardson's claim. Now there's no evidence, absolutely no evidence whatsoever, corroborating uh, or otherwise, that says this ever happened. Um, but the Times, the New York Times, the record of uh, the paper of record said, that the announcement suggests that the university did not directly um, address why its findings contradicted the account of Richardson. So, so the, the, the Times is basically saying, how dare you go out and do an investigation that contradicts the claims by this female who says she was um, yelled racial slurs at? I mean, in essence, that's what the Times is arguing. Um, they respond to BYU's announcement um, also by saying that this is a highly suggestive disclaimer. Help me understand that. I mean, I'm lost. What does a highly suggestive disclaimer mean? And, and here's, the, um, here's the cherry on top. You ready? Here's the New York Times. BYU, I'm, I'm adding this for creative purposes. You ready? BYU, you know, is owned and operated by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The student population, don't you know, is predominantly white and Mormon. Less than 1% of students, you guessed it, are black. The school has struggled with an inclusive and creative environments, don't you know, for students of color. In other words, you know what's going on out there, you readers of the of the New York Times. You know BYU's full of racists. We may not have found it this time. We may have been proven this time, but we put them on notice. We've let them know that if any of those white Jesus-believing Mormons even think about saying something that could be marginally interpreted as somewhat racist, we're coming after you. We might have been wrong on this one. Dawn says they're not, but the evidence says they are. Who cares about the evidence when you got Dawn, right? You got Dawn Staley over here. You've got evidence over here. I mean, who believes evidence and who believes Dawn Staley? Because it probably did happen at another event on another day because you know how them white folk who believe in Jesus are. They say they believe in Jesus, but at their core, they're all racist. I mean, the, the absurdity of that. And where's the accountability? I mean, it, it's personal with me because I'm a Gamecock. I grew up cheering for the Gamecocks. I want the Gamecocks to do well athletically and academically. I want them to be successful. My daughter is a student there. Their women's basketball coach, coach is openly racist and wrong. And how does an openly racist and wrong basketball coach get away with what Don Staley is getting away with when the university chooses the best strategy moving forward is to hunker down. It might be the best strategy, but damn it, it's not right.
I mean, very often the best strategy is not to do what's right. To do what's right means dealing directly with Don Staley, publicly with Don Staley, demanding an apology from Don Staley, or replacing her as women's basketball coach at the University of South Carolina. I thought about this. I would give Don an opportunity to apologize. People make mistakes. People do stupid things. You do. I do. Everybody does. I mean, I've been in politics. The difference in my stupid mistakes, they make the newspaper, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, when Dawn does something dumb, it makes the newspaper. And she made a decision based on what she believed she knew at the time. Which was a mistake to begin with. And that's more sure. Ray Tanner than it is Dawn Staley. I mean, Tanner's got to have control of the situation uh, in a way that, look, you coaches, I mean, I understand there's a crazy world out there, but you work for the university. I mean, you don't work directly for me, but the chain of command leads to me. And before you make a public statement about something you don't know to be true, let's talk about it. I mean, that, that To me, that's the competence of an athletic director and department. And I find Ray to be a very good and honorable man. No Ray Tanner. Like Ray Tanner. I find it to be very ethical, very, very upstanding, very honest, of integrity. But there was a big mistake here made, and it seems that nobody's interested in cleaning up after the fact. Let's go to the phone. Neil in Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning, Neil. Hey guys, I've been uh, stewing over this since uh, you were talking about monarchies earlier in the uh, the broadcast. And I think it actually kind of applies to this situation because, you know, when you guys got to the point where you're like, what would be the trait? And I think the trait of any good leader, whether they're a monarch or other kind, is objectivity. And, and by that, I mean the ability to take all of your personal biases, set them aside, and objectively look at a, a situation. And I think, I think you and I, all of us would agree as conservatives, that if you do that, you end up where we are politically uh, with, you know, knowing that government doesn't work, knowing that, you know, aid uh, in excess kills the family um, unit. I mean, all all the things that make us conservatives. And I think that applies to this situation, too. That good leaders should should look at this objectively, look at the evidence, go, what happened? It doesn't have to be public. You know, it'll get buried. If they just issued a small apology and said the game is on, it would maybe make a paragraph in the bottom of the paper. It'll get buried. But at least they do the right thing. So, objectivity. Thank you, Neil. That's an interesting point. I mean, I'm thinking about in my life in business. Objectivity's always been something you better hold near and dear to your heart. Um, I don't know how many times, two, I got multiple business partners. I meet with two a lot. And, and at times we've had to do this, Rev. At times we've had to say, we made a big mistake. I mean, we thought this property was worth X. We thought the, the, the occupancy per square foot was going to bring X number. We were wrong. I mean, we don't have a news conference, don't have a press conference because we're not a public enterprise. I mean, we're a private company, partners within, but but I don't know how many times we've sat down with one another and we've always, at the first opportunity, put objectivity on the table. And we, we readily admit when we think we've made a mistake. Now, the three of us debate it. I, I don't know, Ken. I don't think the mistake's as big as you think it is. Okay, let's talk about it. But but the uh, there's always, at the center of the conversation is always candid and honest objectivity. We could have made a mistake, guys, the three of us. I mean, you think you're smart. I think I'm smart. Mother part of thinks he's smart. But but we think, I mean, we could have made a mistake here. We, we could have anticipated the market to do one thing. It did something else. We could have anticipated, you know, th- this business model to work one way and it didn't work another way. And I think the public sector has allowed, I talk a lot about insulating itself from practical realities of the marketplace. I think objectivity lacks in the public uh, forum. That, that's kind of an interesting point Neil's making. But, but, but once again, if there is no punishment for being wrong, 
why would you need to put objectivity? Because objectivity cannot be so flattering, right? I mean, you borrow money, you buy a piece of property. You think the property's worth X. Something happens, diminishes greatly the value of the property. Somebody at some point in time has had to say, we made a mistake. I mean, we, we made a big mistake here. And how do we limit the exposure to the downside? That, that's just my world. I mean, it's so natural for us to have those conversations. And it's very, I mean, it's very raw. I mean, there, there is none of this, well, uh, you know, uh, because of the process or because of the policy or because of the state. No, I mean, we got it wrong. We've made some good decisions, but, but at the center of our admitting we make bad decisions is objectivity. So, yeah, Neil, I'm with you. I think one of the, one of the criteria of a great leader has to be an honest and sincere ability to be objective. Did I do the right thing or not? And if I didn't, I need to own it right now. Take ownership of it, improve upon it, admit it. I mean, in Don's case, I think it's a public apology. And I think Tannerow's, the, the, the Gamecock Nation, a public apology. And I think they owe BYU. I mean, I don't much care what BYU does in sports and athletics. But, but the university has a reputation that they've tried to protect, just like everybody else has tried to protect theirs. And their reputation has been impugned, and a new story is centered around what someone said they allowed to happen when it was found to be untrue. So BYU's probably the people that, you know, maybe BYU sues somebody for slander or, you know, defamation. I don't know. I would. Got to be some good Mormon lawyers out there somewhere. <laughs> Take a break. Back in a minute. You know, the inflation number cuts both ways. We don't include food and fuel, right? I mean, the necessities. I mean, we. Well, what is the one thing you buy about every day? Either food or fuel. Mm -hmm. But we don't include that in the basket of items that we measure inflation by. It's a farce. It's bogus. It shouldn't be that way. But the, the federal government, in its infinite wisdom, uh, wants to kind of create a... Um, a scenario of which they're not responsible for what real inflation is. Mm -hmm. uh, the inflation That's number just silly. came out at 8.3. They predicted 8.1. Uh, that means the American worker took another pay cut in the month of August. It's kind of interesting. It cuts both ways. And the reason I say that, gas is about a dollar a gallon cheaper today than it was, what, 40 days, 45 days ago. But the CPI number gets no credit for that. You see where I'm headed? Oh, yeah. So, so when inflation goes through the roof and gas goes to $4.49 a gallon <laughs> and they say inflation's only 8%, you're going like, no, it's, it's got to be 25 or 30%. Well, it is. You know it and I know it, but the government measurement excluded, uh, excludes the price of fuel. Well, all of a sudden fuel goes down a dollar a quarter no benefit from and that. they get no benefit. <laughs> uh, I, I got to believe that if the Democrats, well, the insiders, let's say the establishment, the cathedral, we haven't talked about that in a while. Let's say the cathedral, that they'll try to figure out a way to include fuel when it drops in price, but not included uh, when it goes up in price. Now that's kind of a um, <laughs> that's a real deceptive way to do it. Yeah, but it's all just it's messing Washington. with the numbers. Sure, it for is messaging it, purposes. I like the way you said that. Messing with the numbers. Is there a G on that or not? <laughs> no, messing. Okay, good case. They're messing. Hey, you and I got to be somewhere after lunch today. I mean, yes. we're doing an event yep. together. Yep. We're, uh, uh, where are we going and what are we doing? Uh, we are uh, talking. We are the invited, I guess, speakers at the Hartsville Rotary Club today. Hartsville Rotary invited Club. Invited by one of our great listeners. And yep. so we are we're happy to be there. So we will um, we'll pull out of here at about 1215 or so. Get there yeah. at about 1245 or so. Something like that. Do our thing. Yep. We're getting fed. Uh, I think so. Good deal. Yes, sir. So you know we'll it. be over in, um, in the great city of Hartsville. And I mean that sincerely. One of the great, great cities in all of South Carolina. Uh, they they kind of took it on the chin against Dylan in football, and they don't take too kindly to take it on the chin 
to anybody in high school football. One of the storied, I'd really be two of the storied programs in this area in high school football, not this area, all over the state. Hartsville and Dillon, very well regarded in the um, in the high school football world. Mm-hmm. So um, congratulations to Dillon, but Hartsville will be over. You said I got about 20 minutes? Yeah, that's or what Or something said. like yes, that. Yeah. yeah. So I'll you're, you're going to cut down your regular speech yeah, by about a third. Well, I mean, that'll be two Dillon songs. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll do uh, Visions of Johanna and um, Desolation Row. Okay. And that'll be 20 minutes. If you say so. I told Rev, I drove home from uh, from Litchfield, and it took me three Dillon songs. <laughs> I don't know how long it was, but one Dillon song was like 27 hey, minutes. You're not going to make me listen to that nah, crap we on the way listen. to nah, We may listen to some Old Crow Medicine Show. Yeah. You can tolerate that. Yeah, that can Good handle. Deal. It's Old Crow Medicine Show, Folk Country pop yes. uh, hillbilly yes yeah yes all of that all of the above enjoy your day we'll talk tomorrow